Lucifer Means Lightbringer presents The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire The Weirwood Goddess Part 3 The Catwoman Nissa Nissa Oh, what's that I hear? That sounds like the LML summoning spell. I guess I must owe you guys a podcast or something. So let me welcome you all, friends, patrons of the Starry Host, and fellow mythical astronomers, to another round of holographic dance inside the funhouse of fractal symbolism that is a song of ice and fire. We're picking up right where we left off with the first two Weirwood Goddess episodes, so it's highly recommended that you read the series in order. I would also recommend that you read or listen to the Weirwood Compendium in its entirety before the Weirwood Goddess series, but I don't want to get all bossy or anything, so I'll just leave it at that. Before we begin, I want to let you know that, in case you weren't aware, I've been finding ways to produce more content outside of this podcast feed and the matching essays on LucifermeansLightbringer.com by collaborating with some of the awesome Song of Ice and Fire content creators on YouTube, and these can be found on my YouTube channel in a playlist labeled Collaborations. I did another collaboration with History of Westeros. You'll recall the House Dane, Ashai, and Great Empire of the Dawn episodes that we did together last year. And this time, it was about the cave images that we saw in the recent season of A Game of Thrones. Although we really just used that as a jumping off point to talk about the symbolic idea of the God's Eye, which is actually a concept I have been meaning to release a full episode on for a long time now. I highly recommend that you check that one out because the God's Eye concept is actually a big piece of the mythical astronomy puzzle that you will definitely not want to miss out on. Plus, Aziz and Ashea are great folks, and we had a ton of fun throwing some 36 slides of various images up on the screen as we live-casted. I also did a collaboration with Quinn from the Ideas of Ice and Fire channel, talking about the cave paintings and the God's Eye, that we quickly got into a free-form discussion of some of the deepest mysteries in A Song of Ice and Fire. If you aren't familiar with the Ideas of Ice and Fire channel, Quinn has uber nerd cred and a deep knowledge of important A Song of Ice and Fire influences like Dune and H.P. Lovecraft, and most of his videos are frightening yet intellectual forays into these darker areas of the book series, but flavored with a great sense of humor. His video about the others as icy versions of the she from Irish folklore is one of my favorite things anyone's ever made about A Song of Ice and Fire, so check that out on his YouTube channel. I was also a guest on the Gray Area YouTube channel. She hosted an awesome panel with Gray, myself, Tony Teflon of Teflon TV, and Quinn from the Ideas of Ice and Fire YouTube channel. That's another discussion you won't want to miss. It was supposed to be a panel about the best and worst theories of A Song of Ice and Fire, but we actually spent most of our time taking turns whipping out our favorite and most impressive theories and getting into some pretty deep discussions. So check that one out too. And again, you can find all of these on the Collaborations playlist on the Lucifer Means Lightbringer YouTube channel. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get notifications when I put out something new on YouTube. That would be much appreciated. I'd like to start doing live Q&A sessions in between each podcast as a follow-up, And when I get that started, I will, of course, be giving special priority to our Patreon sponsors. Speaking of Patreon, I'd like to thank all the new patrons who signed up this month. Your support means a lot to me and keeps Mythical Astronomy alive and expanding. If you'd like a cheesy Mythical Astronomy nickname, then be sure to message me through the Patreon website and we will make it happen. Thanks to all of our stalwart patrons who've been with us for the long haul. I have the privilege of bragging about you guys because you all are so generous and enthusiastic with your donations. Keep it coming, and I will keep giving you more content. 
Thanks to Mr. John Walsh for his summoning spell, and check out more of his guitar work on the John Walsh Guitar YouTube channel. A big thanks to the reader, Mr. Martin Lewis, for his amazing vocal acting and his ability to record come rain, sleet, hell, or high water. Thanks, Martin. Thanks to the Amethyst Koala for performing the female voices today and for putting up with me in general. And thanks to our beloved author, George R.R. R. Martin, for introducing us to his world of ice and fire. Now, let's talk about Catwoman. Nissa Nissa had nine lives. This section is brought to you by two of our newest Zodiac patrons, Queen Cameron, Lady of the Twilight, Keeper of the Astral Cats, and Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Ares, and Ash Rose, Queen of Sevens, Mistress of Mythology, and Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Taurus. I have found that the most prevalent symbolism indicating that Nissa Nissa was an elf woman is that of Catwoman. The Melii, like children of the forest, including our favorite, the one named Ash, have those distinctive slitted cat's eyes. And you know who else has cat's eyes? Cat. As in Lady Cat. She has cat's eyes. Sansa, too. Peter tells her that she has her mother's eyes. She has cat's eyes. I kid, but Sansa and Cat are both red-headed weirwood moon maidens, and Cat in particular seems singularly devoted to expressing the weirwood goddess symbolism in the cat's paw scene and the red wedding scene, as well as through her Lady Stoneheart identity. And she's a cat. A Nissa Nissa weirwood maiden with cat's eyes. I mean, it's all right there. Good night, everyone. Thanks for coming. It's the shortest mythical astronomy podcast ever. As Lady Stoneheart, our beloved cat even lives in a weirwood cave, as the children of the forest do. Our attention is actually drawn to the cat's eyes pun in cat's name, during that scene down in the Weirwood Cave, where Brienne finds Stoneheart staring at the ruby eyes of Oathkeeper's lion's head pommel. Stoneheart's burning eyes like red pits mirror the ruby red eyes of the cat on Oathkeeper's hilt, encouraging us to get the joke. The exact line was, The woman in gray had eyes only for the pommel, a golden lion's head with ruby eyes that shone like two red stars. By comparing the glowing red eyes of Stoneheart to the red star eyes of the cat's head pommel, we are encouraged to think of cat's eyes as feline eyes and, well, okay, you get the joke already. Consider also the description of Stoneheart that we finally get when she lowers her hood. Lady Stoneheart lowered her hood and unwound the grey wool scar from her face. Her hair was dry and brittle, white as bone. Her brow was mottled green and grey spotted with the brown blooms of decay. The flesh of her face clung in ragged strips from her eyes down to her jaw. Some of the rips were crusted with dried blood, but others gaped open to reveal the skull beneath. Last time we talked about the symbolism of dappled skin, because the skin of the children of the forest is described as being dappled like a deer's with paler spots. The word spotted works as well as dappled to imply children's symbolism, and today we will find some Nissa Nissa types who find ways to become spotted or even freckled. It means the same thing as dappled, as it does here with Lady Stoneheart being spotted with blooms of decay. It's a deathly version of the dappled symbolism, appropriate for Stoneheart as an undead, ghostly Nissa Nissa figure. I don't know if Beric and Stoneheart's cave full of weirwood roots is under the high heart or not, 
or if that's even logistically possible, because logistics really aren't my forte. But they're in the same general area. And more importantly, I think Stoneheart and the Ghost of Highheart are essentially functioning as similar figures, being ghostly figures who haunt the Weirwoods, as we discussed last time. I mean, I called a lot of these people ghostly emanations of the Weirwood in the last episode, but these two are really hitting the nail on the head. Stoneheart is literally a reanimated shade, while the ghost of Highheart is simply very old and crone-like, and only appears at the Weirwood Circle in the dead of night, and is therefore called a ghost. Fittingly, our crone's lantern patron, Lady Jane of House Celtigar, has lifted her shining lamp of wisdom and shared with us a good observation regarding these two magical crones, the ghost of Highheart and Lady Stoneheart. Both are treated like wise women by the Brotherhood Without Banners, with the Brotherhood following Stoneheart as their leader and seeking out the ghost of Highheart for guidance, advice, and glimpses of the future. More interestingly, Lady Jane observes that although they are very similar characters who play into the same ghostly Nissa Nissa archetype, Lady Stoneheart is animated by fire magic, while the ghost of Highheart worships the old gods and receives visions from the old gods. Both fire magic and green seer magic were key ingredients in the alchemical transformation of Azor Ahai and Nissa Nissa, so what I think we're seeing here is that each crone character is emphasizing a different element of the larger Nissa Nissa archetype. The Ghost of Highheart emphasizes the Green Seer magic component, while Stoneheart highlights the Fire magic component. However, they are ultimately both playing into the same archetypal role, and so even though Stoneheart is animated by fire, we find her living in the Weirwood Cave, and we find her on the receiving end of two vivid depictions of the Weirwood stigmata symbolism. As for the Ghost of Highheart, it was so obviously tied to the Old Gods and the Weirwoods, we recall from the last episode that she was forever changed by the dragon bonfire that was Summerhall. The ghost also seems to be the same person who prophesied that the prince that was promised would be born of Ares and Rhaella's line, so she's been involved with all things fire and blood for quite a while now. This is a good example of how Martin can take the same archetype with the same set of symbols and spin off two similar but different characters, the ghost of Highheart and Lady Stoneheart but by putting them back together, we can get a better picture of the overall archetype, which in this case seems to be the afterlife of Nissa Nissa, a ghostly figure who most likely inhabited the Weirwood Net after her death. And, as we saw in the last episode, her link to the Weirwoods seems to be partly based on her being a cat-eyed child of the forest. In that episode, It's an Arya Thing, I told you that all the burning tree moon maidens that we first examined in Venus of the Woods have some kind of child of the forest symbolism. And as it turns out, this Catwoman symbolism is a pretty popular form of it. It's not just Lady Cat. Arya has a boatload of it, which we'll get into in a bit. And two of my favorite Ash Tree Mood Maidens, Asha Greyjoy and Asha the Wildling, both have it as well. The Wildling Spearwives Ygritte and Thistle both have it too. We'll also take a good look at one more very important fiery Moon Maiden, who we haven't really discussed yet in any detail, one which has obvious Catwoman symbolism. And that would be Cersei Lannister, of course. Hopefully, we will further our understanding of Nissa Nissa in the process, as we did last time. Now, as we have seen, Asha Greyjoy and Asha the Wildling both already have good Melii symbolism going on, starting with the names, which sound like the words Ash, and continuing with their highly metaphorical scenes involving trees and sacrifice that we've examined previously. Both of them play into the all-important Shy Maiden symbolism, and it turns out that both of them do indeed have a bit of Catwoman symbolism as well, and I think this is a good place to start. 
Asha Greyjoy is, of course, well established as a moon maiden, particularly in her Wayward Bride chapter of A Dance with Dragons, where she is symbolically sacrificed to a tree by a Northman dressed as a tree who chops her with an axe, with visions of burning stags and a golden wood dancing through her head as she loses consciousness. Just love that scene. Her Catwoman quote, however, is from A Clash of Kings, as Lord Balin Greyjoy is deploying his forces against the North, treacherous bastard that he is. Asher, my daughter, Lord Balon went on, and Theon turned to see that his sister had slipped in silently. You shall take thirty longships of picked men round Sea Dragon Point. Land upon the tidal flats north of Deepwood Mott. March quickly, and the castle may fall before they even know you are upon them. Asher smiled like a cat in cream. I've always wanted a castle, she said sweetly. Asha is a smiling cat, and the cream makes for a good Milky Moon reference, just as Melisandre's skin-like pale cream does. And after all, what is one name for a crescent moon? A Cheshire cat moon, of course, and that's probably what we should think of with smiling cat moon maidens like Asha here. She's also slipping in silently, language that may be intended to evoke slipping of skins and these silent weirwoods. What I find to be telling is that the castle that she wants to take, Deepwood Mott, happens to be made of logs. It's a wooden fort, in other words, or a castle made of trees, and in the deep wood. Thus, Deepwood Mott makes for a great symbol of the weirwood net, and essentially what Balin just told Asha to do is to go there by way of Sea Dragon Point. Sea Dragon Point itself has weirwood circles, while the so-called bones of Naga the Sea Dragon are petrified weirwood, at least they uh, almost certainly are. So what Balin is saying, translated into symbolic terms, is that the cat-like ash tree moon maiden should use the weirwoods as an entrance to the weirwood net, the deep wood. Or we might say that she should use the living fire of the sea dragon to inhabit the wooden fortress of the weirwood net. Now check this out. House Glover, who rules Deepwood Mott, actually may have covert weirwood symbolism in their sigil. It's an upraised silver fist on red which reminds me of the rising smoke and ash cloud symbol, which is sometimes depicted as a rising fist, such as at Storm's End and the Fist of the First Men. You'll recall that the rising ash cloud doubles as a symbol of the burning ash tree, and so perhaps we can see the silver fist as the rising ash tree and the surrounding red as the surrounding canopy of blood-red weirwood leaves. I probably should have mentioned the idea of a mushroom cloud by now, because that's really the thing to picture here with this rising smoke and ash column that I keep talking about. A mushroom cloud looks like both a smoky, burning tree and an upraised fist. So while it's not really that important, the silver fist on red Glover Sigil may well be that silver smoke column that can represent the weirwood trees, which really just reinforces the idea of the wooden fort in the deep woods as being inside of the weirwood net, and that makes perfect sense. Now sure enough, the one other place that Asha talks about living besides Deepwood Mott is the aforementioned Sea Dragon Point, with its weirwood circles and sea dragon symbolism. Of course Asha would want to live there. Then she would be Asha the Ash Tree Nymph, as well as Asha the Smiling Cheshire Cat Moon Maiden, and all the symbolism would be in agreeance. All right, so now that we are thinking of Asha's symbolism in light of Nissa Nissa being a child of the forest, let's think back to her major scenes starting with that one in the Wayward Bride chapter where she's backed up against the tree as a Northman dressed as a tree hits her in the head with an axe. 
We've always looked at it as Nissa Nissa being sacrificed to a tree, so picturing her as a child of the forest there makes it a very similar scene to Arya in the Godswood at Harrenhal when she was backed up against the heart tree by Jaqen. Jaqen was like one of the trees in that scene, just as the Northmen attacking Asha was camouflaged in boughs and branches and leaves. Asha was ultimately taken prisoner by Stannis the Stormlord, an obvious undead Azor High figure, just as Arya was taken to Beric the Lightning Lord, who was an obvious undead Azor High figure. In fact, one of Asha's chapters in captivity is called The King's Prize, with Asha calling herself that very thing in the chapter. That compares well to Arya as the golden squirrel of uncommon value, who must be taken to the Lightning Lord. The man who takes Arya to Beric was Greenbeard, and the guy who captured Asha Greyjoy was Morgan Little, a Northman dressed as a tree whose house sigil is a green tree line on white with three pine cones. In other words, both scenes have a green man taking our Nissa Nissa elf maiden to an undead Azora High character. Here's another thought about Asha as a Nissa Nissa elf woman. Her ship is called the Black Wind. That calls to mind my idea that Arya is like the Weirwood Wind, particularly at the Ghost of High Heart scene, or when Mel has visions of a girl that she thought was Arya, who was as gray as ash and blew away in a dusty wind. The Black Wind is just another way of talking about the Waves of Night symbol, because the Waves of Night were, in actuality, clouds of dust and ash and debris which blotted out the sun. That Black Wind comes from the moon, so Asha's ship, called the Black Wind, is perfectly named. Asha is like an ashy wind that blacks out the sky. Or you could say, more specifically, that Asha is the burning tree woman and the burning moon woman, and the black wind is the smoke coming from her conflagration. Think once again of Mel's shadow babies, because that's the same idea of smoke and darkness coming from the burning weirwood moon woman. Now you may recall in the last episode that we discussed the possibility of Theon being executed in front of the heart tree that grows on one of the wooded islands on the frozen lake where Stannis has made his camp a few miles from Winterfell. We get a glimpse of that weirwood from Asha's point of view in A Dance with Dragons, and it's worth quoting, if for nothing else, because it contains what passes for a theological argument in A Song of Ice and Fire. Aye, said Big Bucket Wool. Red Rulu means nothing here. You will only make the old gods angry. They are watching from their island. The crofter's village stood between two lakes, the larger dotted with small wooden islands that punched up through the ice like the frozen fists of some drowned giant. From one such island rose a weirwood gnarled and ancient, its bowl and branches white as the surrounding snows. Eight days ago, Asher had walked out with Ali Mormont to have a closer look at its slitted red eyes and bloody mouth. It is only sap, she told herself, the red sap that flows inside these weirwoods. But her eyes were unconvinced. Seeing was believing and what they saw was frozen blood. "'You Northmen brought these snows upon us,' insisted Corley's Penny. "'You and your demon trees. Relor will save us.'" The wooded islands have the upthrust fist, mushroom cloud symbolism that we were just talking about. And the idea of this upthrust fist being a giant's fist reminds us of when Sir Gregor's rising fist rose up to blot out the face of the sun, a.k.a. Oberyn Martell's face. These rising fists, of course, represent both the ash cloud and the symbolic ash tree, the weirwoods which are like pale giants frozen in time. 
On two occasions, we've seen the rising ash glimpsed in a fire vision turn into falling snow. And the weirwood here is as white as snow instead of as white as ash. So this is like a frozen version of the usual ash tree symbolism. I would guess that this is some sort of later stage in the transformation process, and we'll get into that more when we start talking about the others, which we'll be doing very soon, as in like in the next episode. But the really great thing here, and all credit to Ravenous Reader, the poetess, for this catch, the weirwood has slitted eyes, like the slitted cat's eyes of the children of the forest. Children of the forest are not giants, but they can slip the skin of the weirwood giants, and it's also possible that the seemingly taller green men may have similar slitted golden eyes. I'm certainly hoping for that to be the case. More than anything, I would take this as yet another clue about Catwoman living inside the weirwood net, ready to drink Azor High's sacrificed blood. In this case, the blood of Theon, who is a Grey King figure in all of these scenes. Next up, we have the Meliai and Catwoman symbolism of Asha the Wildling. We've already seen that all the Wildling Spearwives seem to be in part drawn from the Meliai symbolism, and we've also seen that the six Spearwives with Mance Raider at Winterfell symbolize Children of the Forest more specifically. Asha herself is a Spearwife in the truest sense, in that she actually fights with a spear several times. She is, in general, very knowledgeable about the Old Gods and the Children of the Forest, introducing Bran early on to the concept of the rustling weirwood leaves being the communication of the old gods, something which turns out to be quite true. In other words, before Bran meets any children of the forest or Blood Raven or even Jojen to advise him, he has Asha, giving him good advice about the children and the weirwoods. We also saw Asha mercy kill Lewin before Winterfell's heart tree in a scene which seems to have parallels to many others which are suggestive of Azor Ahai being sacrificed to a heart tree by a woman with weirwood symbolism. Asha's cat symbolism comes in a game of thrones. Bran lifted his head. Asha stood across the pool, beneath an ancient oak, her face shadowed by leaves. Even in irons, the wildling moved quiet as a cat. Summer circled the pool, sniffed at her. The tall woman flinched. Not only is she a cat, but a shadow cat, as her face is shadowed by the leaves of the oak tree. Said another way, she is made into a shadow cat by the oak tree. You could also call Lady Stoneheart a shadow cat, for that matter, since the thing we call Stoneheart is basically cat's shade, shadow-bound to her own corpse. A shadow cat. In any case, I would say that Asha's being cat-quick despite being in irons, signifies that she's trapped inside the weirwood net, as with Mance in the cage. The beneath an ancient oak language may imply the same thing. Think of a green seer living beneath a tree. The idea of Asha as a Nissa Nissa shadow cat stuck in the weirwood net was also expressed in her awesome scene down in the Winterfell crypts, in the underworld portion of the stone tree labyrinth, which is Winterfell, that is. I'm talking about the scene where the candle flame that she lights causes the shadows of 13 statues of dead Starks to seem to come to life. This is another example of the weirwood goddess resurrecting the last hero's group of Azor High people. The idea of Asha doing this from inside the crypts, which are like the root zone of the stone tree labyrinth of Winterfell, is again suggestive of Nissa Nissa being a ghost inside the weirwood net who can send shadows out into the world or enable resurrections. The crypts couldn't be any more realm of the dead if they painted the Stark statues in Dia de los Muertos makeup, 
So again, we see a strong representation of ghostly Nissa Nissa as the crone, opening death's door and letting shadows and dead things back into the living world. It turns out that Asha is not the only wildling spearwife who is a shadow cat. Take Thistle, for example. Right in the middle of that horrific moment in A Dance with Dragons, when Thistle and Vermeer are fighting for control of her body, it says, The spearwife twisted violently, shrieking. His shadow cat used to fight him wildly, and the snow bear had gone half mad for a time, snapping at trees and rocks in empty air. But this was worse. By itself, this comparison of Thistle to a shadow cat might seem innocuous, but considering that it comes in the heat of her weirwood stigmata, and considering all the other weirwood moon maidens with cat symbolism, I would say it's likely to be intentional. While we're talking about Vermeer, and this is yet another catch by a ravenous reader, we should consider the reason that Vermeer is dying and desperate enough to try to steal Thistle's body in the first place. From the prologue of A Dance with Dragons. Varamir might have been amongst them if only he'd been stronger. The sea was grey and cold and far away, though, and he knew he would never live to see it. He was nine times dead and dying, and this would be his true death. A squirrel skin cloak, he remembered. He knifed me for a squirrel skin cloak. Its owner had been dead, the back of her head smashed into a red pulp, flecked with bits of bone but her cloak looked warm and thick. The he Vermeer is referring to was the child of the dead woman that Vermeer had been taking the squirrel skin cloak from. That woman had had the back of her head smashed into red pulp flecked with bits of bone, which gives her the blood and bone symbolism of the weirwoods, whose red and white coloring are often described as blood and bone. And even the word pulp is a word which evokes wood. In other words, this is yet another squirrel woman, weirwood dryad figure, sacrificed to the naughty greenseer so he might slip her skin and steal her power. The squirrel skin is an unmistakable symbol. Stealing that to wear is akin to stealing the skin of a child of the forest. It's very like Mance Raider wearing the six skins of the wildling spearwives for a cloak. And of course, very like the end of this prologue where Vermeer attempts to steal the body of Thistle while she manifests the weirwood stigmata. Stealing the squirrel skin cloak also reminds us of Arya the Skinny Squirrel at Acorn Hall being flayed by the bathmaids, dressed up like an oak tree, and then taken to the Lightning Lord. As for that vengeful child who knifes Vermeer, well, that seems like the child version of Azor High Reborn, or Nissa Nissa Reborn, coming back to avenge his dead moon mother. In fact, that's pretty much the whole Azor High Last Hero drama in a nutshell right there. Vermeer stealing Nissa Nissa's skin is the transformed version of Azor High Reborn, which would be the father figure, while the vengeful child of Nissa Nissa is Azor High Reborn as a vengeful child. And of course, we can also call this child Nissa Nissa Reborn. Some kind of father-son or father-daughter conflict might be what is at the heart of the last hero, Knight's King, and Azor High stories. and shadow cats. This section is brought to you by our newest Guardian of the Galaxy patron, Sir Morris Mayberry, the upright, climber of Jacob's Ladder and Guardian of the Ghost, whose words are, I drink and tweet things. And by our new Priestess of Starry Wisdom, Lady Danelle Bulwer, the soaring bat of Blackjack Mountain.
We are going to keep talking about Catwoman figures, but I want to zero in on the idea of the Shadow Cat, which I think we need to consider as a symbol or as an archetype. If Nissa Nissa was a child of the forest, a Catwoman, then a Shadow Cat would make for a good description of a ghostly or undead Nissa Nissa, and this is exactly what I think it represents, at least in part. It fits very well with Arya's two major lines of symbolism, which we saw juxtaposed again and again, Child of the Forest symbolism and Death Goddess symbolism. The Shadow Cat seems to have clear lunar symbolism, as we see in this quote from A Clash of Kings, as John climbs the frost fangs toward Ygritte. Off in the darkness, a shadow cat screamed in fury, its voice bouncing off the rocks, so it seemed as though a dozen other cats were giving answer. Once, John thought he saw a pair of glowing eyes on a ledge overhead, as big as harvest moons. There are two good ways to think about the shadow cat representing the moon. The Egyptian god Horus's face was perceived as the sky, with the sun and moon his eyes. So perhaps we can think of the shadow cat's face as the night sky, with these two harvest moons for eyes. Because Planetos used to have two moons, of course. This is exactly what John sees here. The shadow cat's face is invisible, part of the surrounding nighttime darkness. But its eyes glow like a pair of moons. Harvest moons, of course, adding the implication of reaping, death, and preparation for winter. Now when the shadow cat springs into action, however, leaping down from above, I think it represents the moon reborn as black meteors. This is the all-important merged sun and moon character, symbolized by the moon meteors which drank the fire of the sun. In people terms, this is the child of Azor Ahai and Nissa Nissa, who can be seen as either Azor Ahai reborn or Nissa Nissa reborn. The Night's Watch brothers are perhaps the most important representation of the black moon meteors as people, and we will see in a moment that they are also implied as shadow cats. That means that the last hero math we see with the shadow cats here, one cat with a dozen echoing cats, makes perfect sense. Whatever the gender, shadow cats seem to represent the idea of the reborn sun and moon character, which is why we see some of our Nissa Nissa reborn characters as shadow cats, such as Asha, Thistle, and Lady Stoneheart. Arya too, by the way. Now, at the risk of repeating myself, I want to be clear about this. When I say reborn sun and moon character, I'm simply saying Azor High reborn in gender-neutral terms. It's the same thing as saying that Azor High reborn can be a woman, which she definitely can be. I mean, I don't know if you've heard about Danny's dragons or anything, but they're pretty convincing in person, I'm told. On a basic symbolism level, this whole thing is a catastrophe. The sun is commonly depicted as a lion, and therefore a cat. But George seems to have made Nissa Nissa a catwoman by making her a child of the forest. And there's still a lot more evidence to come about this. So the shadow cat works very well as a symbol of the undead, merged sun and moon figure. If living Nissa Nissa is a cat, when Azor Ahai invades her and merges with her to create a new transformed being, that being is the shadow cat. Think of Veramir, the naughty invasive green seer, when he steals that squirrel skin from a blood-and-bone weirwood woman, symbolically wearing her skin, or when he wears the skin of Thistle as she receives the weirwood stigmata. In terms of symbolism, they both say the same thing. It's Azor Ahai, the naughty green seer, invading Nissa Nissa and invading the weirwood tree, which seems to be either closely related or even the same thing. But Veramir also wears the skin of a shadow cat, as we mentioned, and I think the shadow cat is indeed also a part of the greater reborn Nissa Nissa archetype. 
So basically, the shadow cat and the squirrel skin cloak are parallel symbols. We see a similar thing when Tyrion claims a shadow skin cloak from the singer that accompanies Cat and Tyrion to the Eyrie in A Game of Thrones. That's Tyrion, a reborn Azor High figure, claiming the shadow skin cloak of a singer. It was a male singer, but the singer symbolism still applies. Lady Stoneheart is a shadow cat, as I was saying earlier, and she follows the same pattern. Stoneheart was created when Beric, an Azor High figure, breathed fire into her corpse and passed the flame of life onto her, with Beric dying in the process. It's almost as if he invaded her skin with his fire, animating her, like Vermeer's spirit jumping into thistle. Beric passing his fire to Stoneheart is a great depiction of the idea that the invading green seer symbolically sets the weirwood on fire by slipping its skin. That's a pretty nice one, huh? In that same John chapter in the Frost Fangs from A Clash of Kings, there's another great description of the Shadowcat which falls right in line with our interpretation of them as black meteors, smoking black meteors to be specific. As you read this, think of two other important symbols of the black meteors, Valyrian steel swords, which are smoke dark, and Rob's wolf, Grey Wind, whose name implies dark smoke and who is also described as smoke dark. This quote comes as John ascends the mountain with his fellow ranger, Stone Snake. Once he had watched a shadow cat stalk a ram, flowing down the mountainside like liquid smoke, until it was ready to pounce. Now it is our turn to pounce. He wished he could move as sure and silent as a shadow cat, and kill as quickly. Longclaw was sheafed across his back, but he might not have room to use it. He carried dirk and dagger for closer work. They will have weapons as well, and I am not armoured. He wondered who would prove the shadow cat by night's end, and who the ram. The Night's Watch brothers are black shadows, of course, and represent black meteors as well, so this is all pretty consistent. All the symbols which involve smoke and shadow are associated with those black meteors which bring the darkness, and John's smoke-dark Valyrian steel sword is even mentioned in the same breath to help us draw that association. As we see here, shadow cats fit the description too, creatures of shadow that flow like liquid smoke. This is the smoke and shadow that comes from the moon and its moon meteor children, as the shadow cat's eyes like hunter's moons testify. Again, we think of Catwoman Asha Greyjoy's Black Wind. That's more smoke and darkness coming from the moon or the moon maiden. There's even a funny line in A Game of Thrones about the Night's Watch brothers being equivalent to shadow cats. When Catelyn and Tyrion's group has to leave a few dead bodies behind on their journey to the Eyrie, this is referred to as leaving them for the crows and shadow cats, as both animals are scavengers and eaters of the dead. Reborn Night's Watch crows don't eat the dead, but they do kill the walking dead. In fact, I think that's essentially the deeper meaning of George choosing to nickname the Black Brothers after a carrion-eating bird like a crow, because the original purpose of the Night's Watch was to kill the dead, or to re-kill the dead, I guess you might say. Back in A Clash of Kings, we find these lines. John did not think the shadow cats would attack living men, not unless they were starving. But he loosened Longclaw in its scabbard even so. A wind-carved arch of grey stone marked the highest point of the pass. Here, the way broadened as it began its long descent toward the valley of the milk water. Corin decreed that they would rest here until the shadows began to grow again. Shadows are friends to men in black, he said. 
Shadow cats don't usually attack living men. They eat the dead ones, though, just as the Night's Watch kill the living dead. Shadows are friends to Men in Black because Men in Black are black shadows themselves. When John and Corn climbed the mountain, it said, Up they went, up and up, black shadows creeping across the moonlit wall of rock. And from there, they stalked the wildlings and leapt down from the ledge, just like a shadow cat. John's sword Longclaw is a wolf sword, of course, but it too has the black and white thing going on, just like the shadow cat. I should also mention that when John wonders about who will be the shadow cat, the killer, and who will be the ram, meaning the sacrifice, he's actually talking about the wildlings up in the Skirling Pass, one of whom is the red-headed moon maiden spearwife named Ygritte. She might be a shadow cat, indeed, because she's a red-headed weirwood moon maiden. I neglected to mention last time that Ygritte's name breaks down into Ig-Rite, as in a ritual or rite of Yggdrasil. That find comes from one of our priestesses of starry wisdom, namely Archmaester Emma, founder of the Maiden Maesters and keeper of the Two-Headed Sphinx. Thanks, Emma. Great job. Yggdrasil, in A Song of Ice and Fire, is the weirwood tree, and that's what Ygritte is, a weirwood dryad. One thinks of her cutting the throat of that old man beneath the apple tree at Queen's Crown after John had balked at the Magnar's command, then throwing the bloody knife at John's feet. That's yet another weirwood maiden cutting the throat of a sacrifice beneath a tree, then yielding up a bloody blade, a pattern we saw repeatedly in Venus of the Woods. It's an Ig rite. Ygritte was even a shy maid down in the caves with John, and looking back, her suggestion that they stay down there forever sounds like Nissa Nissa trapping Azor high in the weirwood net again. That idea keeps popping up. It's worth noting that John steals Ygritte before she tries to trap him, so once again it seems like Nissa Nissa is the first sacrifice, and only after that is Azor High trapped by her inside the weirwood net. It's similar to Veramir and the squirrelskin cloak. The woman with the cloak dies first, then Veramir wears her squirrelskin and, at the same time, takes an ultimately mortal wound, which in turn leads to Veramir invading Thistle, then the weirwood tree, and then being trapped in a one-eyed wolf in a fine parade of symbolic equivalencies. So, Ygritte, the lover of an Azora high figure, who might be a shadow cat, is a red-headed spearwife and a weirwood dryad. She even hunts with a weirwood bow, reminding us of the Meliai making spears from their own ash trees. The arrow that kills Ygritte during the wildling attack on Castle Black strikes her in the chest, in true Nissa Nissa fashion. And since we always make a big deal out of everyone's eyes, I'll point out that in this same John chapter, Ygritte sees John playing with his direwolf, and we get the line, He saw Ygritte watching with eyes as wide and white as hen's eggs. The moon was an egg, Khaleesi, and so, like the shadow cat John saw earlier, her eyes represent two moons. As an example of how deep the symbolism goes and how tightly it's correlated in A Song of Ice and Fire, I will say that there are two other mentions of hen's eggs in this series. In The Mystery Night, Bloodraven is disguised as Maynard Plum, and he has that moonstone brooch that looked like a single eye, which was as big as a hen's egg. And when Dunk sees a dragon's egg later in that same story, he thinks that it was much bigger than a hen's egg. Moonstones and dragon eggs. The moon was an egg, Khaleesi, and one day it wandered too close to the sun and cracked from the heat, and a whole lot of dragons were born. I'd like to close this Shadowcat section by expanding on the gender inversions and gender bending that we've been talking about with the merged Sun and Moon character, the prince or princess that was promised, if you will. Upon closer inspection, I have found that many of our Azor High Reborn and Nissa Nissa Reborn characters play gender games. 
Take Jon Snow, for example. That's right, Jon Snow, man-made. Ygritte calls him a maid after taking his virginity, and earlier when Ygritte gives him some good innuendo, he wonders why he feels like a blushing maid. And then there's the hilarious scene where Jon meets his first giant, and Tormund tells Jon that the giant had asked him if that was his daughter riding there beside him with those smooth pink cheeks, meaning Jon. And for that matter, when Jon first saw Ygritte, buried beneath a great mound of skins, no less, he mistook her for a man. Consider Tyrion. Oberyn tells him that one of the rumors about Tyrion when he was born was that between Tyrion's legs were, quote, a girl's privates as well as a boy's. Oberyn himself was a fantastic Azor High in his fight with the mountain, and he's, of course, bisexual, which implies a certain amount of androgyny. Some of Oberyn's daughters, the Sand Snakes, are trained in martial combat, sort of defying the gender norms, if you will, with Obara in particular being described as having an angry, mannish look to her, and she wears man's breeches. Jake and Hagar, whom we saw playing the role of a weirwood assassin character, is somewhat feminized with descriptions like slender and fine-featured, his skin smells clean and soapy, and even his hair is scented, and he also leaves behind a faint whiff of ginger and cloves in one scene, which is interesting because Melisandre is also described as smelling like cloves, and anise and nutmeg. Jaqen makes for a fitting contrast to the tomboyish Arya, who probably does more gender-flipping than anyone, from posing as a boy, taking on boys' names, and joining the Night's Watch, to her fundamental rejection of the standard life of a noblewoman in Westerosi society. Consider for a moment the gender games being played with the Knight of the Laughing Tree, who was taken for a man, but who is almost certainly Lyanna, a she-wolf with the wolf blood like Arya. And of course, most people can see the clear parallels that are drawn between Arya and Lyanna. We also saw parallels drawn between the Knight of the Laughing Tree, a woman in disguise, and Jaqen, with both appearing looking like trees, immediately following someone else praying to the Weirwoods for help. One of the clues about the Knight of the Laughing Tree being female, despite the voice that booms from her helm, is the scene where Lady Cat observes the end of the melee at Bitterbridge in A Clash of Kings, where Brienne of Tarth is defeating Sir Loras Tyrell. Brienne's voice is muffled by the helm and does not betray her gender to Cat until she takes her helmet off. Voice aside, Brienne is yet another Nissa Nissa reborn figure. She's a moon maiden turned to an even star or morning star who happens to wield the single best symbol of Lightbringer in the books, Oathkeeper, which of course has a cat's head pommel, and she obviously engages in quite a lot of gender flipping. Pod Payne, memorably, cannot ever decide whether to call Brienne Sir or My Lady, often sort of mixes them both together, while person after annoying person comments on Brienne wearing a man's armor. Cersei Lannister, whom we're about to dig into, has some terrific gender-bending lines, such as the famous, By all rights, you ought to be in skirts, and me in mail, which made it to the TV show as, I should wear the armor, and you the gown. Either way, it's a memorable line for sure. Then there's the one where Cersei is mocking Jaime as a cripple in A Feast for Crows, and she says, A pity Lord Tywin Lannister never had a son. I could have been the heir he wanted, but I lacked the cock. These turns of phrase emphasize a theme which runs throughout Cersei's plot arc, which is the struggle of a woman in feudal society who wants to take power. In terms of an archetype, Cersei is a Nissa Nissa or Nissa Nissa reborn figure who is trying to become the king herself, much like Daenerys. The most important thing to consider here might be the words of Septon Barth concerning dragons, that they are neither male or female, but rather changeable as flame. And how about those androgynous Targaryens? 
This is getting close to what I believe to be the source of the inspiration for all this gender bending, something I have referred to before as part of the inspiration for the Azor High archetype, the hermaphroditic Baphomet, also known as the Sabbatic Goat. One of the defining elements of Baphomet is that it represents the sum total of the universe and expresses both sides of a lot of binary symbolism, day and night, good and evil, above and below, and of course, male and female. You could call it a much more creative and overwrought expression of the idea behind yin and yang, what is called Taoist philosophy, but the point is that they both have a common theme of integration, balance, and a harmony of opposites, which seems to be one of the major themes in A Song of Ice and Fire. In fact, it's right there in the title. The Song of Ice and Fire is a harmonization of opposites, by definition. As it happens, the clearest expression of this idea comes in the brand chapter with the story of the Night of the Laughing Tree. Just before Mira tells the story, Jojen gives that famous speech about, If ice can burn, then love and hate can mate. And that in response to Brand saying that love and hate are irreconcilably different, like day or night, or ice and fire. I don't want to get too lost in Taoist philosophy, but it's a big part of Arya's arc. Think of the House of Black and White, which we'll discuss at the end of this episode, and I think it applies most to our resurrected heroes who transcend death. That's the context in which I see the gender bending coming in, as one further aspect of the harmonization of opposites. And that brings us back to the Shadow Cat a merged sun and moon archetype who can manifest as a boy or a girl. Consider the fur of the shadow cat, thick black fur slashed by stripes of white. It's showing us more dualism, more harmonization of opposites. I have a feeling this shadow cat with moon eyes, whose howl is echoed by a dozen other unseen cats, essentially means that the last hero is a shadow cat figure. Even those stripes of white which slash the black fur could be imagined as glowing swords in the darkness, like a line of black brothers with swords of white fire. Of course, it could also be a line of white shadow others walking out of the darkness, so stay tuned for more on that. Now, it should come as no surprise to you that I don't think a female last hero is out of the question by any means, or at the very least, females in the last hero's party. With all the gender inversion with the Azor High Reborn figures, I think it's pretty much up for grabs. I mean, after all, the most clear manifestation of Azor High Reborn in the story is a woman. Queen Mother of Dragons, Khaleesi Chainbreaker, Daenerys Targaryen. Also, the Wonder Woman movie was awesome, am I right? Therefore, we have to keep in mind that the actual gender of the last hero in his 13 is undetermined. And the same goes for trying to figure out who is the new last hero. Okay, we've got one more Catwoman to go before we get to Arya and the House of Black and White, where we'll actually develop the shadow cat archetype even further. This last Catwoman is a really fine example of the uh, breed, shall we say, and she's another character I've probably neglected for far too long. The Lioness and the Widow. This section is sponsored by two of our longtime Zodiac patrons, Lord Leobold the Victorious, the Fire Lion of Lancasterly Rock, and Earthly Avatar of Celestial House Leo, and Blue Raven of the Lightning Peck, Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Gemini, whose words are, the way must be tried. I'm talking, of course, about Cersei Lannister, and even a few of her ancestors, or actually most of her ancestors, as you'll see. Cersei is a fiery moon maiden, Nissanus a reborn figure, as we've mentioned in A Burning Brandon and Garth of the Gallows. 
Obviously, she has cat symbolism by virtue of her being a Lannister lion, and she's often called a lioness or described as doing something like a cat. She definitely qualifies as a catwoman if anyone does. Cersei also has bright green eyes, as do some of the children of the forest who are gifted with one of the various green gifts. You'll recall that the standard color for the eyes of children is gold, and that those born with skin changer or green seer abilities have eyes that are green or red. Cersei's father, Tywin Lannister, has eyes which are an even better match for the eyes of the children of the forest. Green, flecked with gold, and almost luminous, as Cersei describes them in A Feast for Crows. Cersei, like all Lannisters, pairs her green eyes with golden hair, and this is also her most common choice in attire. And then there's this line from A Clash of Kings, as Tyrion catches sight of Cersei on horseback in King's Landing. Mounted on her white palfrey, Cersei towered high above him, a goddess in green. A green cat goddess. That sounds like the right idea. There's a great scene that Ravenous Reader spotted where Jamie's talking to Cersei, and in his inner monologue he thinks, I prefer you dappled in sunlight with water beating on your naked skin. In other words, Cersei is a dappled green lion goddess, one who marries a stag man extraordinaire, Robert, who's like a horned god when he's mounted on horseback and wearing his antlered helm. A green goddess and a horned god. Cersei and Robert made a better symbolic pairing than they did an actual couple, I think it's safe to say. Cersei would appear to be named after a goddess, the Greek goddess Circe, which is spelled C-I-R-C-E, who is the daughter of the sun god Helios, which obviously works well for Cersei Lannister, daughter of Tywin. The Greek Circe is a goddess of magic, who appears alternately as a nymph, an enchantress, a sorceress, or a witch, or some combination of those. She's mostly famous for luring people to her island and turning men into animals, preferably pigs. She's definitely a feminist, in other words, but obviously the main thing here is the idea of a goddess who creates human-animal hybrids, if you will. This would seem to be more a clue about Nyssa Nyssa than Cersei Lannister, but I think we've consistently seen that the names and nicknames of the various Nyssa Nyssa figures in the story have been chosen to help describe the Nyssa Nyssa archetype, such as Asha, Asha, Rowan, Melisandre, Catelyn, Arya, and Ygritte. One other interesting note on Cersei the Greek goddess, she's thought to live in a house in the middle of a clearing in the woods, almost like a heart tree in the center of a godswood. And as I said, this is on an island, so now we're thinking about a godswood on an island like the Isle of Faces. When you combine that with the human-animal transformation ideas and the idea of Cersei as a temptress who will trap you on her island, we're starting to see a lot of parallels with our weirwood goddess figure, who seems to have trapped Azor High in the weirwood net, and also to have aided his resurrection and re-emergence from the weirwood net. Just as a reminder, this is simply the tree as womb and tomb idea that we've seen reflected with Yggdrasil myth, where the last survivors of Ragnarok hid from the cataclysm inside the Yggdrasil tree, only to be reborn afterwards as the new Adam and Eve to repopulate the world. The Greek Circe does have some obvious parallels to Circe Lannister, though. Besides the goddess Circe being the daughter of Helios, she's frequently depicted with tame or sleeping lions and wolves around her, and the legend is that she used her magic to make the wolves and lions sleepy. We can also see that even without the magic and sorcery, Queen Circe is definitely a temptress figure who uses guile and seduction to control men and usually send them to their doom. Queen Circe marries a man with pig symbolism, Robert, and it's even noted that Cersei had become very fond of Boar since Robert's death, since, as you will recall, 
Robert was killed by a boar, which he also slew, and just as Robert commanded, that boar was eaten after his death. That black devil of a boar, which Robert believes was sent by the gods to punish him, is also implied as a transformed person, oddly, in this line from Stannis in A Clash of Kings, where he says, If someone said I had magicked myself into a boar to kill Robert, likely they would believe that as well. Cersei, by her own admission, also made Robert into a stag man in a different sense when she got pregnant by Jaime, telling Jaime, I want him horned. Moving on to the symbolism of House Lannister in general, there are some decent skin-changing clues lurking in the shadows, which may be indicative of a past link to such. In A Dance with Dragons, the child of the forest named Leaf listed the great lions of the western hills in with the other magical beasts such as direwolves and unicorns, implying that they were once a magical animal that skin-changers probably bonded with as they do direwolves. That's perhaps our best evidence of literal lion skin-changing. But then we have Lan the Clever to talk about. The World of Ice and Fire suggests that some believe Lan the Clever, the great ancestor of House Lannister, was descended of Garth the Green, and there may be cryptic skin-changer symbolism in the tales of Lan slipping inside Casterly Rock. In one tale recounted to us in The World of Ice and Fire, Lan uses the cleft to fill the rock with mice, rats, and other vermin, thereby driving out the Casterlies, which paints Lan as some kind of beastmaster. And in another tale, he smuggles a pride of lions inside, and Lord Casterly and his sons are all devoured, after which Lan claims his lordship's wife and daughters for himself. Which is basically more of the same. How does one smuggle a pride of lions anywhere, or control their movements in any way? Obviously, this fable needn't be literal, but like I said, it might be a hint about Lan being a lion skin changer. All of this runs through my head when we read that as a child, Cersei was brave enough to put her hand through the bars of the lion cage and touch a lion, even letting it lick her hand, while Jaime was not. The coward. It's probably neither here nor there, but just maybe, maybe just maybe, there's an echo of the magical lion tamer here, and it also seems like an echo of the Greek Cersei using her magic to calm and tame the lions. Last note on Lan. Another tale has him coating himself with butter and slipping in through the cleft in the rock, whereby he set about to work his mischief, whispering threats in the ears of sleeping Casterlies, howling from the darkness like a demon, and in general, sowing strife. It's the whispering and the demon howling that has our attention, though, reminding us of the demon trees that whisper on the wind. Casterly Rock does have a weirwood in its godswood, for what it's worth, in the aptly named Stone Garden. As I mentioned, there are some Child of the Forest clues in the Lannister family tree, and this next bit actually started with a catch by Reddit user LL Coolsand, so hat tip to him. Indeed, Cersei's lineage involves two women with symbolic ties to burning trees, ash trees, and rowan trees. Her grandmother, who's Tywin's mommy, was Lady Jane of House Marbrand. They have the burning tree sigil, and the castle named Ashmark, and the red-headed Sir Adam Marbrand, who has last hero symbolism that we'll get around to mentioning one time or another. Jane Marbrand is, therefore, a burning ash tree woman, who became a cat woman by marrying into House Lannister. Jane, by the way, is a Hebrew name and means God is gracious. So this is a tree woman burning with the fire of the gods, which is something we knew already. Cersei's great-grandmother was one Lady Rohan Weber, who became Rohan Lannister when she married Gerald the Golden Lannister. This is the so-called Red Widow from the second Duncan Egg novella, The Sworn Sword. Rohan sounds like a slightly modified version of Rowan, as in the Rowan tree, 
And indeed, the Red Widow fits the bill. House Rowan of Golden Grove in the Reach, descended from Garth the Green, is actually the overlord of both Lady Rohan's House Weber, as well as the rival House Osgray, which is the other house that features prominently in the story. The current Lord Rowan, at that time, is even specifically mentioned in the story as being recent kin to Lady Rohan, just to help us get the Rowan Tree reference in her name. Lady Rohan is called the Red Widow because of her strawberry red hair, which is usually worn in a long, kissed-by-fire braid. In one scene, it lay coiled in her lap like a sleeping cat. A sleeping, kissed-by-fire cat, who's also a Rowan Tree woman. She also has a light spray of freckles across her cheeks, which I believe may be another version of the dappled skin symbolism, since dappled means spotted and freckles are basically spots. When she appears in armor, she wears... A suit of green enamel scale, chased with gold and silver. It fit her figure like a glove, and made her look as if she were garbed in summer leaves. That's pretty much checking all the boxes. Rohan has basically every kind of weirwood goddess symbolism you could want. Garbed in summer leaves is trademark children of the forest language, and since this green armor fits Rohan Weber like a glove, the idea of a green hand is clearly implied. And of course that makes sense, because we already think there's a strong link between the children of the forest and Garth and his horned folk. We are also reminded of Rohan's descendant, Circe the Green Goddess, who marries the Garth-like Robert Baratheon, or of the Garth-like Greenbeard, threatening to marry Arya when she's wearing the green acorn dress. We haven't even mentioned the symbolism of webs and spiders and weaving, since her last name is Weber, all of which ties into the Weirwoods. But those are topics for another day. I will quickly point out that a spider web functions much like a fishing weir. They are both trapping barriers stretched across a place that their intended prey use as a thoroughfare. Oh, and by the way, the entire plot of the Sworn Sword revolves around the Red Widow damming up a stream. Building a weir, in other words, and in a Song of Ice and Fire terms, that means setting a trap for greenseers. There's actually a scene from the Sworn Sword that I want to quote, because it's all about Lady Rohan trapping sword heroes inside the burning wood. The main part of the scene is a dream that Dunk has of the Red Widow, and right before he nods off to sleep, Dunk is describing the contents of his mind. Dunk's head was full of dragons, red and black, full of checky lions, old shields, battered boots, full of streams and moats and dams, and papers stamped with the king's great seal that he could not read. And she was there as well, the Red Widow, Rohan of the Cold Moat. He could see her freckled face, her slender arms, her long red braid. Those checky lions of House Osgrey are green and gold, by the way. And indeed, I think House Osgrey is playing the solar role in this drama. Since Dunk is his sworn sword, that would make Dunk the Comet, sent by the sun to penetrate the castle of the Moon Woman, whose red braid and freckles are highlighted. Dunk also thinks to himself, she is too small, too clever, and much too dangerous, which might be a good description of Nissa Nissa, at least in her vengeful form. Notice that Dunk has dragons on the brain, which makes sense because he's about to try to forge a Lightbringer, but he's going to do that in his dreams. Drowsing at long last, Dunk dreamed. He was running through a glade in the heart of Watts Wood, running toward Rohan, and she was shooting arrows at him. Each shaft she loosed flew true, and pierced him through the chest, yet the pain was strangely sweet. He should have turned and fled, but he ran toward her instead, running slowly, as you always did in dreams, 
as if the very air had turned to honey. Another arrow came, and yet another. Her quiver seemed to have no end of shafts. Her eyes were grey and green and full of mischief. Your gown brings out the colour of your eyes, he meant to say to her. But she was not wearing any gown, or any clothes at all. Across her small breasts was a faint spray of freckles, and her nipples were red and hard like berries. The arrows made him look like some great porcupine as he went stumbling to her feet. But somehow he still found the strength to grab her braid. With one hard yank, he pulled her down on top of him and kissed her. The line about the air turning to honey is almost certainly a reference to ash tree folklore. Both Greek and Norse mythology associate honey sap with the ash tree, most notably with Yggdrasil and the Meliai. The Meliai nourished baby Zeus with their honey sap, if you recall. In the dream, we find Lady Rohan with her breast bared like Nissa Nissa, and her eyes are full of mischief, calling to mind the mischievous elf translation of Nissa, and building on the line earlier about her being too dangerous for Dunk. Those mischievous eyes of Lady Rohan are gray and green, which reminds us of the green boys and graybeards symbolism that refers to green seers and gray kings, and is often associated with the deep woods. As Dunk runs to her, Rohan is firing her moon meteor arrows, which is the spitting image of the Greek moon goddess Artemis, the huntress, who is famous for her skill with the bow and arrow. The arrows also serve to make Dunk a sacrifice, and like Rob Stark at the Red Wedding, sprouting quarrels, he looks kind of like a tree now with lots of little wooden branches. He's sacrificing himself to the tree, just like the hanged man on his gallows knight shield that he carries for a time. Ah, oh, hanged man, gallows knight, hey, look at that. Dunk is also like a falling star about to set the tree on fire in this scene, which is depicted in his other shield, the one with the shooting star and elm sigil. And that would be the shield which Brienne recreates in A Feast for Crows, interestingly. Just as Dunk reaches Rohan and pulls her down, he wakes, and the next lines are... He woke suddenly, at the sound of a shout. In the darkened cellar, all was confusion. Curses and complaints echoed back and forth, and men were stumbling over one another as they fumbled for their spears or breeches. No one knew what was happening. Egg found the tallow candle and got it lit to shed some light upon the scene. Dunk was the first one up the steps. He almost collided with Sam Stoops rushing down, puffing like a bellows and babbling incoherently. Dunk had to hold him by both shoulders to keep him from falling. Sam, what's wrong? The sky, the old man whimpered. The sky! First off, this is a weirwood portal scene for Dunk. As he reaches and joins with the Weirwood Moon Maiden, pulling her down on top of him, he suddenly finds himself in a dark cellar, much like a Weirwood cave or an underworld death realm. Notice that we have a fellow named Sam huffing like a bellows, just like Sam Tarly coming out of the well at the night fort, puffing like a blacksmith's bellows. It is indeed sword forging time, which is why a dragon named Egg is lighting a candle, and why people are terrified of whatever's happening in the sky. That whatever turns out to be the rising of a wrong sun, which is really a burning wood. The sun was rising in the west. It was a long moment before Dunk realized what that meant. What's wood is a fire, he said in a hushed voice. They were too far away to make out flames, but the red glow engulfed half the western horizon, and above the light the stars were vanishing. 
The king's crown was half gone already, obscured behind a veil of the rising smoke. Fire and sword, she said. As I said, it's a wrong sun. The reborn Azor High figure, the Dark Solar King. And that's why the king's crown is disappearing behind the obscuring veil of burning tree smoke, the notorious black wind symbol that we've been mentioning. This is, yet again, the lunar revenge of Nissa Nissa, the moon meteor smoke which darkens and transforms the sun. This new wrong sun needs a fiery sword, of course, and so Dunk says, fire and sword. Let's take a peek at the fire itself. The fire burned until morning. No one in Stanfast slept that night. Before long they could smell the smoke and see flames dancing in the distance, like girls in scarlet skirts. They all wondered if the fire would engulf them. Dunk stood behind the parapet, his eyes burning, watching for riders in the night. Once again, Dunk seems to be playing the role of a transformed green seer here, standing with his eyes burning and imagining himself engulfed in fire. Notice that he's now a watcher on the walls, too, like our green zombie Night's Watch brothers. The flames, like dancing girls, are the familiar fiery dancers, confirming that this is indeed a Ground Zero Lightbringer bonfire scene. Where we see Lightbringer bonfires, we find the ember in the ashes symbolism quite often, and that's the case here when Dunk and Sir Eustace go to survey the damage to the wood. Where Watt's wood had stood, they found a smoking wasteland. The fire had largely burned itself out by the time they reached the wood, but here and there a few patches were still burning, fiery islands in a sea of ash and cinders. Elsewhere, the trunks of burned trees thrust like blackened spears into the sky. Other trees had fallen and lay athwart the west way with limbs charred and broken, dull red fire smouldering inside their hollow hearts. There were hot spots on the forest floor as well and places where the smoke hung in the air like a hot grey haze. Red fires smoldering in the hearts of hollow trees is exactly what the idea of Azor High as the ember in the ashes represents. The fiery islands in a sea of ash is exactly the same motif, and I can't help but think of the Isle of Faces, an island of symbolic burning ash trees. And did you notice that some of the trees in this sea of ash have become spears? That's another Melii reference, I would think, since they famously made spears from their ash trees. So let's put this whole sequence together. Dunk dreams and goes into the wood, searching for the weirwood moon goddess, ends up simultaneously sacrificing himself and pulling her down, whereupon Dunk finds himself in a dark cavern-like cellar while the woods themselves catch fire. I believe that was our favorite naughty green seer pulling down the moon, setting the tree on fire, and entering the weirwood net to possess the fire of the gods. Hence Dunk's burning eyes and the talk of fire and sword, which indicates that he now possesses fire. As the smoke darkens the sky and the world is covered in ash, he emerges from the symbolic weirwood cave below, eyes burning, to become a watcher on the walls, connecting the transformed naughty green seer figure to the Night's Watch, as we have seen many times. Pretty good stuff, right? Again, this is Cersei's great-grandmother that we're talking about with Lady Rohan. At the conclusion of the Sworn Sword, Lady Rohan ends up marrying old Mr. Checky Lion himself, Sir Eustace Osgray, in order to retain possession of her lands. But being old, he dies too, like all her previous husbands, and eventually she marries Gerald the Golden Lannister. That's how she contributes her excellent weirwood dryad, burning ash tree, and catwoman symbolism to House Lannister, a terrific compliment to Cersei's grandmother, 
Jane Marbrand of Ashmark. And because these things are like bottomless wells, I will also point out that there was a Rohan Tarbeck, who was a child at the time of Tywin's destruction of House Tarbeck and House Rain. What's noteworthy here is that there is a rumor that Tywin tore out the tongue of Rohan Tarbeck and her sister before sending them to the Silent Sisters. That's weirwood stigmata symbolism and Silent Sister symbolism, consistent with our other ash tree women. And, 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 there's also one more Rohan in A Song of Ice and Fire, and she wed Damon Blackfire, the Black Dragon, who is a primo uno symbol of Azor Ahai as a Dark Lord, thus placing Rohan of Tyrosh in the Nissa Nissa role. At the end of the day, the extent of all the ash tree Rowan symbolism in A Song of Ice and Fire might be one of the most irrefutable examples of intentional symbolism that there is. I mean, good lord. That's all I have to say. Good lord. We've been working on it for like, I don't know, what, four episodes now? So that gives you an idea of all the symbolism leading up to the notorious Cersei Lannister. She's a Nissa Nissa, a Catwoman figure, descended of Garth the Green, and a bunch of burning tree women. And she even passes it on to her daughter, Marcella. We're about to get into an important Cersei scene to see what we can learn about Nissa Nissa from Cersei, but before we move on, let's briefly consider Marcella. It's kind of like background information for Cersei's symbolism, just like the ancestors that we just studied, except for instead of being her ancestor, Marcella is her daughter. But since Marcella herself is not really a big part of the story, while Cersei is an important character with lots of POV chapters, it functions essentially the same way. Marcella's symbolism is complementary to Cersei's. Now, we don't need to take long to do this, but I just want to say that the main thing Marcella does is get shipped off to Dorne to be betrothed to Tristane Martell, followed by her role in Ariane Martell's plot to crown Marcella and herself and rebel against the Iron Throne. Of course, Marcella is tragically wounded by the scoundrel knight Darkstar Gerald Dane being sliced across the face and losing an ear. That's pretty obvious scratch across the face of the Moon Maiden symbolism, with Darkstar Dane making for a good Dark Azor High character. Now before this incident, Darkstar had been telling Ariane that really, she should be killing Marcella instead of crowning her, and later Dorne Martell says that crowning her would have amounted to killing her anyway. And of course, this is what happens when the moon receives the fiery crown of solar eclipse right before it is killed, which you can see demonstrated in Michael Klarfeld's wonderful animation that he did for my first video, which I'm sure all of you have watched and shared many times by now. Cough, cough. Ahem, ahem. Thank you, thank you. Also, the place where Ariane wanted to crown Marcella was the Hellholt, which is simply another way of implying the Moon Maiden's death coming with her crowning. In other words, she's going to hell to become queen. The words gold shall be their crowns and gold their shrouds come to mind, since this again implies a link between being crowned and dying. I've pointed out before that Marcella is taken down to Dorne by a ship named King Robert's Hammer which is escorted by one named Lion Star, both of which imply a fiery, falling star that was the hammer of the waters landing in Dorne, or on the arm of Dorne. Marcella is a moon maiden, so you know the drill. This falling star, like a hammer, was a piece of moon. Another of the ships escorting Marcella was Lady Lyanna, a moon maiden in her own right, and the last ship was called Bold Wind, giving us the ashy wind of darkness and smoke and debris that comes from the moon explosion and the moon meteor impacts the one which blotted out the sun. So, the convoy bringing Marcella to Dorne basically tells the whole story. From moon to falling star that drank the fire of the sun, to hammer that struck the earth and threw up hell winds of smoke and ash. 
Marcella has a really cool link to Children of the Forest symbolism, and that comes from her spots. George has the people of Westeros calling chickenpox red spots, and when Arion plots to sneak Marcella out of Dorne, she does it by putting out word that Marcella has red spots to keep visitors away, then dressing a blonde-haired handmaiden of Marcella's from Lannisport as Marcella, complete with Maester's salve on her face, which is apparently the treatment for red spots. As I mentioned with the freckles of Red Widow Lady Rohan Weber, being spotted works the same as being dappled, so this whole subterfuge with Marcella and the red spots is basically a sneaky way to work the dappled spotted symbolism into the symbolism of Marcella the Catwoman Moonmaiden. As it happens, Marcella was hanging out with another spotted cat on her way to being crowned at the Hellholt, Spotted Silva of House Santigar of Spotswood. House Santigar's sigil is an actual spotted cat, a leopard, which is standing up and holding a battle axe, set against a field of blue and white. The name Silva is an obvious variation of the word Sylvan, which is just another type of dryad creature, a wood spirit. Now, as punishment for her part in Ariane Martel's conspiracy, Spotted Silva is sent to live on an island called Greenstone to marry the elderly Lord Eldon Estremont. Oh, and in addition to being the heir to Spotswood, her spotted nickname comes from the fact that she has freckles, just like Lady Rohan Weber turned Rohan Lannister. Now look, I know this episode is called Catwoman, but I mentioned earlier that the Shadow Cat can be a reborn Nissa Nissa woman or a Night's Watch brother, and how the figure of Azor High Reborn can just as well be considered Nissa Nissa Reborn. So while we're talking about spotted cats, I have another spotted cat man to tell you about. Ah, said Hizda, pleased. Now comes the spotted cat. See how he moves, my queen? A poem on two feet. The foe Hizdar had found for the walking poem was as tall as Gogor and as broad as Belwar's. But slow, they were fighting six feet from Danny's box when the spotted cat hamstrung him. As the man stumbled to his knees, the cat put a foot on his back and a hand around his head and opened his throat from ear to ear. The red sands drank his blood, the wind his final words. The crowd screamed its approval. A poem on two feet is very like the idea of Arya as a song, with both being deadly assassins. The idea of being spotted is basically the same as dappled, as I said, because dappled means spotted. So what we have here is a dappled cat person, who is a fighter, and who kills his opponent in the manner of a ritual sacrifice, giving him a red smile. And look, his victim is a giant, just as the weirwoods are called pale giants. Thus, we get both the implication of a sacrifice and giving a giant tree a face, complete with the red smile. The sands drink his blood, just as Bran tastes the blood of the sacrificial victim in his vision through the pond beneath the heart tree. The wind drinks his words, which speaks of our sacrifice being swallowed up by the black wind of the moon and the burning tree. So, sorry for that little deviation from Cersei, but... You know, we're really talking about the Nissa Nissa archetype, and in that context, spotted cats are all related. But let's do get down to business and burn down the Tower of the Hand. A Pack of Gleeful Ghouls This section has been delivered to you by Sir Brian the Returned. Knight of the Last House, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Red Song, and earthly avatar of Heavenly House Ophiacus the Serpent Bearer, and by Black-Eyed Lily, 
the Dark Phoenix, priestess of the Church of Starry Wisdom. As you might expect, when Cersei Lannister burns down the Tower of the Hand, there's a lot of fantastic symbolism going on. We are eventually going to do a whole section on wildfire in the future, so don't expect me to go too in-depth with the wildfire as a symbol right now, though it is surely important. Spoiler alert, it has to do with the intersection of fire magic and green seer magic, since it's, you know, green fire. Now there's a lot here at the Tower of the Hand scene that fits with our line of inquiry today regarding Nissa Nissa, the Catwoman, and that's what we'll be focusing on. Check out this passage from A Feast for Crows, where Jamie recalls the burning of the Tower of the Hand after the fact. Jamie knew the look in his sister's eyes. He had seen it before, most recently, on the night of Tommen's wedding. When she burned the Tower of the Hand, the green light of the wildfire had bathed the face of the Watchers, so they looked like nothing so much as rotting corpses, a pack of gleeful ghouls. But some of the corpses were prettier than others. Even in the baleful glow, Circe had been beautiful to look upon. She stood with one hand on her breast, her lips parted, her green eyes shining. She is crying, Jamie had realised, but whether it was from grief or ecstasy, he could not have said. Green zombie alert, everyone. The walking green corpses are even called Watchers, just like the Watchers on the wall who were the original green zombies, according to my theory. And of course, we just saw Dunk go through a fiery green seer transformation, only to become a fiery watcher on the wall. As for Cersei, we see the agony and ecstasy death cry symbolism of Nissa Nissa put in an appearance, as Jamie sees Cersei crying from either grief or ecstasy. Appropriate to this moment of symbolic death, Cersei appears as a green corpse here. She's even got one hand on her breast, as if she's just been stabbed there like Nissa Nissa, and her parted lips add a layer of sexual innuendo. This sure sounds like Nissa Nissa being reborn as a green zombie, doesn't it? I'd also say that undead, green-skinned Catwoman Cersei is very comparable to green and gray-skinned and undead Lady Stoneheart, formerly Lady Cat, though obviously Cersei, being only a symbolic zombie, is a bit better looking, meaning no offense to Lady Cat. And zombies in general, I guess. As a compliment to the idea of Cersei as a resurrected corpse, we see in A Storm of Swords that on one of the nights that Jaime stands vigil over Tywin's corpse, Jaime dreams of his and Cersei's mother, Joanna Lannister, but mistakes her for Cersei at first. That night, he dreamt that he was back in the great Sept of Baelor, still standing vigil over his father's corpse. The Sept was still and dark, until a woman emerged from the shadows and walked slowly to the bier. Sister, he said, but it was not Cersei. She was all in grey, a silent sister. A hood and veil concealed her features, but he could see the candles burning in the green pools of her eyes. Joanna, as a Lannister, can be seen as a Catwoman, and she's a ghost emerging from the shadows here, so I'm tempted to see her as another Shadow Cat figure. She's got the silent sister symbolism like Stoneheart, another ghost of a Catwoman. The line that really grabs my attention is the one about candles burning in the green pools of her eyes. Cersei's eyes are described as being like wildfire by Sansa during the Battle of the Blackwater, and that's what a candle in a green pool makes me think of, such as in season six episode, such as in the season six episode, such as in a season six episode of HBO's Game of Thrones. Don't worry, no spoilers for those avoiding the show. 
we see a burning candle in a pool of wildfire, which was used as a kind of timed fuse. And that's what I think of when I see, you know, a candle in a green pool inside of Joanna's eyes. Point being, Joanna's ghost and Cersei both have wildfire eyes after a fashion, and in the scene at the Tower of the Hand where Jamie saw her as a green ghoul, Cersei's eyes were shining with reflected wildfire. Earlier in the story, in that very same Sept of Baylor, when it was Joffrey's corpse laying there instead of Tywin's, we get a scene that is a companion to the one we just looked at. You may recall Jamie giving Cersei the sword while her moonblood was on her, with Cersei on the altar of the maiden like a sacrifice, because we've looked at that scene before. Here it is from A Storm of Swords. He kissed her again, kissed her silent, kissed her until she moaned. Then he knocked the candles aside and lifted her up onto the mother's altar, pushing up her skirts and the silken shift beneath. She pounded on his chest with feeble fists, murmuring about the risk, the danger, about their father, about the septons, about the wrath of gods. He never heard her. He undid his breeches and climbed up and pushed her bare white legs apart. One hand slid up her thigh and underneath her small clothes. When he tore them away, he saw that her moon's blood was on her, but it made no difference. This is such great Nissa Nissa sacrifice symbolism, with the sex and swordplay theme on full frontal display. Sorry. The moon blood and altar imply moon maiden sacrifice, and the sex implies, well, sex. It is sex. Doesn't imply sex, it is sex. The best part, and the reason I pulled the quote here instead of summarizing, is that bit about the wrath of the gods. Yikes. Of course, that's a perfect fit for the idea of killing Nissa Nissa as an abomination of blood magic, which did indeed invoke the wrath of the gods. The falling candles knocked off the altar by Solar King Jaime would represent the fire of the gods falling from heaven. Also, pro tip, when Arya is fleeing the Red Keep in a Game of Thrones, she swipes two candles from the Sept, thinking to herself that the gods would never miss two, which is Arya stealing the fire of the gods. Arya aside, I think these two Cersei scenes in the Sept of Baylor are linked, with the earlier scene with Jaime and Cersei depicting sex and Catwoman sacrifice, and the scene with Joanna's burning-eyed ghost emerging from the shadows that Jaime mistakes for Cersei, showing us the lingering ghost of Nissa Nissa, again like Lady Stoneheart or the ghost of Highheart. As for the burning of the Tower of the Hand itself, it's pretty easy to see the basics of what's going on here. A green, burning tower is just another way of showing us a burning tree symbol, while emphasizing its green component. Consider also that in The Mountain versus the Viper and The Hammer of the Waters, Bloodstone Compendium Number 4, I posited that the Tower of the Hand represents the burned moon, and of course we've seen that things which symbolize the burning moon also symbolize the burning weirwood tree. It's pretty consistent, in other words, the Tower of the Hand symbolizes the burning moon and the burning tree both, as do all of the weirwood moon goddesses. The Tower of the Hand is burned after Tommen and Marjorie's wedding, and in that chapter, Jamie talks about searching the secret passages in the tower. Some of the secret crawlways had turned out to be so small that Jamie had needed pages and stable boys to explore them. A passage to the back cells had been found, and a stone well that seemed to have no bottom. They had found a chamber full of skulls and yellowed bones and four sacks of tarnished silver coins from the reign of the first King Viserys. In other words, only children can get through some of these tunnels, helping us to think about the tower as a burning tree symbol inhabited by children of the forest. 
the bottomless well they find is a pretty likely reference to the bottomless wells at the roots of Yggdrasil, just like the well at the Night Fort. There's lots of bones, like Bloodraven's Cave, and the sacks of silver coins means silver stags in bags, a bit of dead and buried stagman symbolism that we saw with the cat's paw bearing a leather sack of stags in the stables at Winterfell. Cersei is convinced that Tyrion might be hiding in there and hopes that the fire will smoke him out. Tyrion is like an Azor High as the ember in the ashes, in other words, hiding inside the weirwood net. And Cersei is the goddess trying to raise him up or get him out of there, if you will. When we first see the Tower of the Hand earlier in this chapter, it says, When Cersei looked up, she saw the tower's crenellated battlements gnawing at a hunter's moon and wondered for a moment how many hands of how many kings had made their home there over the past three centuries. Because of the ambiguous wording, this sentence can also be read as if the hands of the king are making their home in the moon. When she says, how many hands had made their home there, the there could be either the moon or the tower of the hand. That's because, symbolically, they are the same place. Earlier, Jamie called the tower of the hand a hollowed-out shell, which is a terrific moon-as-an-eggshell reference. The star of the show, however, is the tower's battlements gnawing at the moon, which strongly reminds us of the trees of the wolf's wood shutting out the moon and stars and scratching at the face of the moon, or of the night fort weirwood reaching for the moon to pull it down into the well. We've also seen another tower antagonizing the moon like this, and that would be the one at the Hammerhorn Keep of House Goodbrother, where Aaron Dampere finds the spiky iron battlements of the Hammerhorn clawing at the crescent moon. Because we know that the moon meteors, in some sense, set the tree on fire, a la the storm god's thunderbolt and the burning tree, what we are seeing is the weirwood pulling the moon meteors down and basically into itself, whereupon the moon meteors become part of the burning tree. This can be seen as Azor High Reborn, or Nissa Nissa Reborn, entering the weirwood net through death transformation and setting the weirwood on fire. On a basic level, the moon being clawed at is there to clue us in to the idea that this scene is going to be about lunar sacrifice and the forging of Lightbringer. If the Tower of the Hand is a burning tree symbol and a burning moon symbol as I suggest, then consider how this scene compares to other significant Lightbringer bonfires, such as Danny's alchemical wedding or Melisandre burning the wooden statues of the Seven on Dragonstone and also burning the Weirwood at Storm's End. Melisandre is a burning tree woman and thus parallels the burning wooden gods and the burning weirwood, and we also saw her paralleling the burning weirwood cage that Mance was imprisoned in. Then on the other hand, we have Danny, the burning moon woman, who parallels the bonfire and becomes one with the fire and gets the fire inside her and all that. And accordingly, Cersei also parallels the burning tower of the hand. I mentioned a moment ago that Cersei's green eyes are called eyes of wildfire, and Jamie compares her personality to Wildfire elsewhere in A Feast for Crows, a comparison that many in the fandom have latched onto. During the burning itself, there's a passage which reminds us of both Danny and Mel's blood-burning transformation experiences. Cersei felt too alive for sleep. The wildfire was cleansing her, burning away all her rage and fear, filling her with resolve. The flames are so pretty. I want to watch them for a while. That language is almost identical to Danny's alchemical wedding, where she thought the flames were lovely, so lovely, and the fire was burning and cleansing her as well. The burning tower itself is alive with this fire, in parallel to Cersei, who is too alive for sleep. The tower went up with a whoosh. In half a heartbeat, its interior was alive with light, 
red, yellow, orange, and green, an ominous dark green, the colour of bile and jade and pyromancer's piss. Only a handful of very important things get the famous alive with light description, such as Dawn, of course, Stannis's fake lightbringer, Renly's magical castle of a green tent in his sacrifice scene, the wall, and a couple of others. So this really stands out. It makes a lot of sense if the green burning tower is indeed intended as a burning tree symbol, since the burning tree is a symbol of Lightbringer and the fire of the gods, as are Stannis' sword and the ancestral sword of House Dane and all the other things which are alive with light. I should also note that the pyromancers lit the candle, as Cersei calls the tower, with twelve flaming arrows. The Shy Maiden symbolism makes an appearance here as well, I was pleased to discover. You will recall that the flames which look like Shy Maidens are always the first flames to spring from the fire. And so with that in mind... Some of the ladies gasped when the first flames appeared in the windows, licking up the outer walls like long green tongues. The ladies here are gasping from fright. They're being shy, in other words, just as the first flames appear in the windows. They're accompanied by tongues of fire, the Holy Spirit symbol that we've seen attached to the burning tree a few times, such as the burning library tower at Winterfell during the cat's paw scene. And actually, Ravenous Reader points out that inside the tower, Cersei had placed the greater part of the worldly possessions of a dwarf named Tyrion Lannister. And knowing Tyrion, that means books. A lot of books. And so what we have is burning books inside the tower. And of course, the burning book, burning library as a burning tree symbol, was Ravenous Reader's discovery as well. It's another good link to the burning library scene at Winterfell, as well as Arya's burning books and burning parchment scenes at the Kingspire Tower at Harrenhal, which is, of course, another Ground Zero bonfire slash burning tree symbol. So, to sum up what we've seen so far, this is a fiery rebirth scene for Cersei involving the burning tree that compares well to many other Weirwood Maiden slash burning tree scenes. The green ghoul walking corpse symbolism in the earlier quote from Jamie emphasizes the death aspect and encourages us to think of green resurrection. And of course, the burning tree symbol does too. That covers Nissa Nissa Reborn as a zombie. But what's really cool is that the burning tower is also twice compared to Cersei's children, which gives us the idea of Nissa Nissa being reborn in her offspring. While the tower is burning, she thinks to herself, It is beautiful, she thought as beautiful as Joffrey when they laid him in my arms. No man had ever made her feel as good as she had felt when he took her nipple in his mouth to nurse. In other words, even as Cersei appears corpse-like and has the fire cleanse and transform her, indicating death transformation, she is showing us childbirth symbolism as well, just as the moon died while giving birth to fiery dragon meteors. In this next quote, the flames are compared to Cersei's other son, Tommen, which emphasizes the point that this green tower represents both undead Cersei and her children. We will also see the collapse of the tower, which reminds us again of the alchemical wedding and shows us the landing of those moon meteors. The Tower of the Hand gave out a sudden groan, so loud that all the conversation stopped abruptly. Stone cracked and split, and part of the upper battlements fell away and landed with a crash that shook the hill, sending up a cloud of dust and smoke. As fresh air rushed in through the broken masonry, the fire surged upward. Green flames leapt into the sky and whirled around each other. Tommen shied away, till Marjorie took his hand and said, Look, the flames are dancing, just as we did, my love. They are. His voice was filled with wonder. 
Mother, look, they're dancing. The cracking and splitting stone sounds a lot like the dragon's eggs hatching, and the dancing flames give us our familiar fiery dancer symbol, which seems to be more or less the same thing as the shy maiden. We usually find these fiery dancers and shy maidens appearing alongside fiery sorcerers as well, and that role is played here by the pyromancers, who are literally fiery sorcerers, and who light the tower on fire for Cersei. We see the trademark rising cloud of dust and smoke, and the impact that shook the hill brings in the suggestion of the moon meteor impact that set the tree on fire. This is a full-fledged Ground Zero Lightbringer bonfire, it's safe to say, and that's why it's so important to note that the flames are compared to Cersei's children, Tommen in this scene and Joffrey in the previous one, but that they're also compared to an undead or burning Cersei. As I've said many times, and will say many times more, the rebirth of Azor High or Nissa Nissa can take the form of either a reanimated zombie person or the form of a new child carrying on the legacy or curse of their parents. And in this scene, we see both. All right, well, I think we can feel confident that Cersei is indeed another one of our burning tree Nissa Nissa reborn figures, and thus her Catwoman symbolism is meaningful for our quest to learn the truth about Nissa Nissa and the children of the forest. Cersei shows us a vengeful, violent version of this figure, and this lines up well with the vengeance and death symbolism of Lady Stoneheart and Arya. Oh yeah, and probably with the return of Daenerys Targaryen to Westeros. Although who knows, maybe Danny will do more planting of trees than burning them. And maybe my podcast will get shorter. Okay, so let's finish this one up with Arya's Catwoman symbolism. Most of that goes down in Braavos, so that means it's also time to talk about the House of Black and White. The House of the Shadowcat. This section can only be sponsored by our Shadowcat patron, Sir Harrison of House Casterly, the noontide sun, whose words are deeper than ever did plummet sound. And I'd also like to thank the Venus of Astgik, Starry Lady of the Dragonstones, and Priestess of the Church of Starry Wisdom. Now when it comes to Catwoman symbolism, Arya's is really the best of anyone. It's one thing to be named cat or to come from a house with a lion sigil, but there's nothing quite like skin changing a cat, which Arya does in one of her chapters at the House of Black and White in A Dance with the Dragons. She also goes by the name Cat of the Canals, which was the title of one of her chapters in A Feast for Crows. It's no surprise to find Arya playing the Catwoman role, since her Child of the Forest symbolism is so extensive. My dear friend and frequent contributor to the podcast, Ravenous Reader, informs me that the name Arya, in addition to being a song sung by one person in an opera, also has another very interesting meaning. If you look up the meaning of the name Arya, the first thing that you'll see is that it is a Hebrew girl's name, meaning lioness. Mm. It is also a variant on the Hebrew Ariel, which means Lion of God. That seems relevant. Arya is indeed a catwoman in service to a god, the god of many faces, the god of death. Accordingly, she is a shadow cat figure and a killer, as we saw in her Hall chapters, and she comes and goes from the House of Black and White, the Temple of the Faceless Men. As I mentioned when we discussed Jake and Hagar in It's an Arya Thing, the House of Black and White is a lot like a weirwood tree. Specifically, it brings the realm of the dead aspect of the weirwood net to the fore. As Arya is sailing into the harbor of Bravos, she touches upon this idea, 
After the captain mentioned to her that the seven of Westeros have a sept here, she thinks to herself that the seven were her mother's guns, not hers, and she also blames the seven for the Red Wedding. Her thoughts then turn to the old gods of the north. The old gods are dead, she told herself, with mother and father and Rob and Bran and Rickon all dead. A long time ago, she remembered her father saying that when the cold winds blow, the lone wolf dies and the pack survives. He had it all backwards. Arya, the lone wolf, still lived, but the wolves of the pack had been taken and slain and skinned. Of course, we know the old gods aren't completely dead. The old gods seem to be some sort of collective consciousness made up of the spirits of dead greenseers and earth singers, as Jojen explains in A Dance with Dragons. Maesters will tell you that the weirwoods are sacred to the old gods. The singers believe they are the old gods. When singers die, they become part of that godhood. So, dead, but not quite dead. I'm feeling fine, I think I'll go for a walk. In fact, I think the weirwoods are meant to be seen as essentially half-dead trees in terms of symbolism. They're often called white trees, such as the wildling village of White Tree, which is defined by its giant white weirwood tree, but I think that George might be implying them as white trees, as in W-I-G-H-T white. The weirwoods are being animated and possessed like a white's body is possessed, and they are flesh eaters like a true zombie. Quite frankly, I sometimes wonder if there is actually any tree consciousness in there at all, or if it's really just the collective mind of the greenseers living off the weirwood net like a parasite living inside a host body. In any case, the weirwoods represent a doorway to the realm of the dead, as we have discussed. They are like the veil of tears, the barrier between life and death. The weirwood door beneath the night fort served this purpose symbolically, with cold hands as the psychopomp escorting Gilly and Sam back from the other side, trading them for Bran's company and in turn taking them to Bloodraven's cave. Think of the moon door in the Eyrie, carved of weirwood. It's a doorway to death as well, a method of execution. And that brings us to the doors of the House of Black and White, our first obvious clue that the House of Black and White symbolizes the realm of death inside the weirwood. At the top, she found a set of carved wooden doors 12 feet high. The left-hand door was made of weirwood pale as bone, the right of gleaming ebony. In their centre was a carved moon face, ebony on the weirwood side, weirwood on the ebony. The look of it reminded her somehow of the heart tree in the godswood at Winterfell. The doors are watching me, she thought. She pushed upon both doors at once with the flat of her gloved hands, but neither one would budge. Locked and barred. Let me in, you stupid, she said. Across the narrow sea. She made a fist and pounded. Jacken told me to come. I have the iron coin. She pulled it from her pouch and held it up. See? Valar Morghulis. The doors made no reply, except to open. The moon-faced weirwood and ebony doors, watching Arya like the heart tree in Winterfell, is a definite clue about the symbolic link between the weirwoods and the House of Black and White. We notice that in order to gain entrance, Arya has to recite the Valerian Oath, which means all men must die, emphasizing this place as the realm of the dead. Another terrific death and weirwood clue comes when the kindly man shows himself to Arya after she enters the temple. Do you fear death? She bit her lip. No. Let us see. The priest lowered his cowl. Beneath he had no face, only a yellowed skull with a few scraps of skin still clinging to the cheeks. 
and a white worm wriggling from one empty eye socket. Kiss me, child, he croaked, in a voice as dry and husky as a death rattle. Does he think to scare me? Arya kissed him where his nose should be, and plucked the grave worm from his eye to eat it, but it melted like a shadow in her hand. This seems like an obvious nod to Bloodraven, whose skull gets the following description in A Dance with the Dragons. A little skin remained, stretched across his face, tight and hard as white leather, but even that was fraying, and here and there brown and yellow bone beneath was poking through. Bran also notices the white wooden worm that grew from the socket where one eye had been, and that's kind of the clincher here. The kindly man's voice like a death rattle also reminds us of the voice of Lady Stoneheart, whose voice is labeled a death rattle, and the voice of Cold Hands, who is dead and whose voice rattles in his throat. Stoneheart symbolizes a kind of weirwood zombie, and Cold Hands is a weirwood zombie, if my theory about him is correct. So, a lot of things here at the House of Black and White remind us of Green Seers and of Bloodraven's Cave. And, when we go back to Bloodraven's Cave, we see that it returns the favor by reminding us of the House of Black and White. The roots were everywhere, twisting through earth and stone, closing off some passages and holding up the roofs of others. All the color is gone, Bran realized suddenly. The world was black soil and white wood. You probably also recall the chairs from the House of Black and White. They have white weirwood chairs with ebony faces and black ebony chairs with white weirwood faces. This black and white symbolism suggests a reconciling or reintegration of polar opposites, as I mentioned a little bit earlier when we talked about the Night of the Laughing Tree and the Baphomet and yin-yang and all that stuff. And not by coincidence, the black and white symbolism is also found in the coat of the Shadowcat, with its black fur striped with white. In fact, I think we should basically think of Arya as the Shadowcat, particularly in these scenes in Bravos, where she wears the name Cat, comes and goes from the House of Black and White, in service of the God of Death, and kills a few people. She even gets a black and white robe, her version of the Shadowskin Cloak. The kindly man says that Bravos crawls with cats, but Arya is a cat of another stripe a death cat or a dead cat. Samuel Tarly actually comes across Arya while she's disguised as Cat of the Canals, and there's a couple of interesting lines as Arya helps Sam deal with a couple of bravos that were looking to bully him. Don't do that either, said the Barrow girl. Or else they'll ask you for your boots next, and before long you'll be naked. Little cats that howl too loud get drowned in the canals, warned the fair-haired bravo. Not if they have claws. And suddenly, there was a knife in the girl's left hand, a blade as skinny as she was. The one called Tero said something to his fair-haired friend, and the two of them moved off, chuckling at one another. Did you catch that? Arya, the Catwoman, is called the Barrow Girl. A dead thing, in other words. A spirit of the Barrow, like the Nis of Scandinavian folklore. Like I said, a dead cat, or better yet, an undead cat or a shadow cat. She has claws for a certainty, and note that skinny Arya is compared directly to the skinny blade of her knife, as if she were a blade herself. And this reminds us of the Night's Watch brothers, who are themselves considered swords, the swords in the darkness. Indeed, one of my favorite lines from Arya's Cat of the Canals chapter in A Feast for Crows has Arya leading a last hero's dozen and riding a dragon. Cats liked the smell of cat. Some days she would have a dozen trailing after her before the sun went down. From time to time, the girl would throw an oyster at them and watch to see who came away with it. 
The biggest Toms would seldom win, she noticed. Oft as not, the prize went to some smaller, quicker animal, thin and mean and hungry. Like me, she told herself. Her favourite was a scrawny old Tom, with a chewed ear who reminded her of a cat that she'd once chased all around the Red Keep. No, that was some other girl, not me. That one-eared black tom she's talking about is the notorious black cat of Princess Rainies, the daughter of Rhaegar, who was killed in the sack of King's Landing during Robert's Rebellion. That cat was named Balerion, after Aegon the Conqueror's black dragon. And thus, we have Catwoman Arya with last hero math and a fondness for the cat that reminds her of a black dragon symbol. This reminds us of how Night's Watch brothers can be shadow cats and of the fact that Arya was posing as a Night's Watch recruit for a while. In fact, this scene with Arya, the shadow cat, and a dozen cat followers is a great match to John's scene in the Frost Fangs, where he saw a shadow cat with moon eyes, whose cry was echoed by a dozen other cats. Seemingly, of course, it was just the echoes, but you get the point. As Arya the Barrow Girl warned the Bravos, she is a cat with claws, a servant of the god of death, and the first time that we see her use those claws to send someone to the grave is in this same Cat of the Canals chapter, where she enforces Westerosi law on Daron, the singer and Night's Watch Oathbreaker. He came to Bravos with Sam and then turned his cloak and betrayed his oath, if you recall. Arya is mimicking her father here by executing a runaway Night's Watch brother, it should be noted, just as Ned did in A Game of Thrones when he executed a runaway Night's Watch brother. I just love this scene because of how subtle and cold-blooded it is. Arya, as Cat of the Canals, leaves the happy port with Daron after a long day selling oysters, cockles, and clams, and it says, The swollen red sun hung in the sky behind the row of masts when Cat took her leave of the happy port. With a plump purse of coins and a barrow empty, but for salt and seaweed, Darion was leaving too. Darion talks and brags of how he's moving up in the world, and how he'll soon be singing for the most famous courtesans and maybe even the sea lord himself, oblivious to the call of the grave coming from Arya's barrow, and this line comes right smack in the middle of his boasting about the singing. Cat's empty barrow clattered over the cobblestones, making its own sort of rattling music. That is the rattling music of the grave leading Darion home. But first, Arya has to confirm his guilt. What happened to your brother? Cat asked. The fat one. Did he ever find his ship to Old Town? He said he was supposed to sail on the Lady Ushanora. We all were Lord Snow's command. I told Sam, leave the old man. But the fat fool would not listen. The last light of the setting sun shone in his hair. Well, it's too late now. Just so, said Cat, as they stepped into the gloom of a twisty little alley. And the next line, the very next line after that, has Cat plopping the dead Darion's boots down onto the table at Brusco's, the deed already done off page. It's just cold, as is Arya's confession to the kindly man later that night. But we're always looking for the symbolism, and I believe we were just given two solar death symbolisms in rapid succession. First, a swollen red sun hung behind a row of masts. And we know that masts are made of tree trunks and serve as tree symbols, so this is a solar sacrifice by hanging on a tree, a la Odin. Then the last light of the setting sun shines in Darion's hair, marking him for death and solar sacrifice. And right as he says, it's too late now. Just so. 
You just told Jon Snow's little sister that you took a dump all over Jon Snow's orders and your Night's Watch vows, so yeah, it's too late. Darion sealed his fate already. The solar sacrifice symbolism continues with Arya's super understated confession to the kindly man, where she reports the killing of the singer in a detached, third-person fashion upon being asked what new things she learned that day. This time she did not hesitate. Darion is dead, the black singer who was sleeping at the happy port. He was really a deserter from the Night's Watch. Someone slit his throat and pushed him into a canal, but they kept his boots. Good boots are hard to find. Just so. She tried to keep her face still. Who could have done this thing, I wonder? Arya of House Stark. Darion was given a red smile by the Barrow Girl, like someone sacrificed to a weirwood. In fact, Arya is basically like the Grim Reaper in this scene, or like the person pushing the plague cart in that one scene in Monty Python on the Holy Grail. Bring out your dead! Here I will also give a plug to my friend Sweet Sunray's tremendous essay on Arya as a Valkyrie figure, which you can find on my website at lucifermeanslightbringer.com, or by Google searching Arya, Valkyrie, and Sweet Sunray. You'll find it no problem. The Valkyries were death goddess figures in Norse mythology, and all of Sweet Sunray's analysis along these lines of Arya as a Valkyrie basically confirms what we're finding here. Valkyrie means chooser of the slain, so you can sort of get the idea if you don't know already. Arya is, after all, the servant of the many-faced god, the god of death. But the question is, is she merely a servant? Hold that thought. There's another nice clue about Arya being a dead cat, and it's tied to this northern justice that Arya doles out here to Darion. Most days, she spent more time with the dead than with the living. She missed the friends she'd had when she was cat of the canals. Old Brusco with his bad back, his daughters, Talia and Brea, the mummers from the ship, Merry and her whores at the happy port, all the other rogues and wharfside scum. She missed Cat herself the most of all, even more than she missed her eyes. She had liked being Cat more than she had ever liked being Salty or Squab or Weasel or Arry. I killed Cat when I killed that singer, the kindly man had told her that they would have taken her eyes from her anyway, to help her to learn to use the other senses, but not for half a year. Blind acolytes were common in the house of black and white, but few as young as she. The girl was not sorry, though. Darian had been a deserter from the Night's Watch. He had deserved to die. She had said as much to the kindly man. And are you a god to decide who should live and who should die? He asked her. Yes, she is a god, the weirwood goddess, the goddess of death. This is punctuated at the end of the conversation. His hand closed around her arm, gently but firmly. All men must die. We are but death's instruments, not death himself. When you slew the singer, you took God's powers on yourself. We kill men. We do not presume to judge them. Do you understand? No, she thought. Yes, she said. You lie, and that is why you must now walk in darkness. Until you see the way, unless you wish to leave us, you need only ask, and you may have your eyes back. Here's a prediction for you. Arya will, in fact, leave the House of Black and White without ever learning this lesson. 
She will indeed continue to take God's powers on herself. She will indeed continue to judge man, and she will continue to kill those who deserve to die. And there are a lot of men who deserve to die. Arya is not death's instrument. She is death itself. She's unlike anything the House of Black and White has ever seen, and they probably should never have trained her. Shades of Anakin Skywalker, perhaps. But that's not what happened, is it? Arya has been empowered with certain skills, and it seems that she's eventually going to be turned loose on Westeros. What I like about this exchange is that it explicitly implies Arya as a goddess, or as one who takes the powers of a god on themselves. That is essentially what Bran is learning in his parallel House of Death experience in Bloodraven's cave. But let me pose this uh, kind of dark question regarding death cults and assassin cults. If we're operating under the premise that some people are intended to be death's instrument on the earth, who's to say the faceless man system of determining who should be killed is the right one? I mean, it seems pretty good, since they always demand an extremely high price relative to a person's wealth, so as to ensure people don't go willy-nilly hiring faceless men left and right. But Arya might simply be anointed by the gods, so to speak, to choose who lives and dies. For that matter, killing Darion was technically just and in accordance with Westerosi law. The law says that an oath-breaking Night's Watchman is condemned to death, but as far as we know, doesn't really specify who can carry out that death sentence. I think maybe anyone can. You are basically marked for death as an oathbreaker, so I think Arya's killing of Darion is defensible, but it also shows that she is still Arya and not no one. One other note, Arya reflects that when she killed Darion, she killed Kat as well. That is, of course, a nod to the mutual death sequence of Azor Ahai and Nissa Nissa, of Sun and Moon. And because Kat of the Canals was only a disguise being worn by Arya, a false identity that she has now effectively killed and made useless, you could view this as Nissa Nissa dying and leaving her skin behind to cross the Veil of Tears and to go live inside the Realm of Death, represented here by the Temple of the Faceless Men. Now, aside from the weirwood doors with faces on them, the biggest clue about the House of Black and White and the Faceless Men functioning as a symbol of the weirwoods and the Green Seers is the skin-changing connection, of course. The Green Seers change skins by essentially invading the consciousness of other animals or even people, while the Faceless Men actually wear the skins of dead people as disguises, presumably with the aid of some kind of magic that we don't understand. Both are skin-changing, quote-unquote, but the Faceless Men take it a bit more literally. Compare Bran and Arya. Bran goes into Bloodraven's cave and the Weirwoodnet itself to learn how to change his skin, and Arya goes into the House of Black and White to, well, learn how to change her skin. In fact, the symbolism of the House of Black and White and the Old Gods is so similar, you almost cannot describe one without sounding like you are talking about the other. Here's Lady Cat talking about the Old Gods while narrating our very first glimpse at a weirwood tree in A Song of Ice and Fire. The blood of the first men still flowed in the veins of the Starks, and his own gods were the Old Ones, the nameless, faceless gods of the Greenwood they shared with the vanished children of the forest. And yet these faceless gods can wear the skins of man and beast, just as the faceless men can wear the skins of others. The Weirwood Net seems to be able to send out shadowy assassin figures, as we've seen in countless scenes, and that's just what the faceless men are, shadowy assassin figures. To help us make the connection, George even gave us Jaken, the faceless man assassin, appearing like a tree in the Harrenhal Godswood after Arya prayed to the old gods for help. That scene parallels the story of the Knight of the Laughing Tree, as we've discussed, 
And although no actual faceless men are involved in the Night of the Laughing Tree story, the fact that the identity of the Weirwood Sigil Knight is unknown implies the same faceless concept, someone without an identity. The Night of the Laughing Tree is faceless and nameless, just like the old gods of the Greenwood the cat is talking about in this quote. All the Nissa Nissa Shadowcat figures are showing us this Weirwood assassin figure, the vengeful undead tree spirit, and of course the idea of a green zombie Night's Watch brother is very similar. Dead green seers and skin changers reanimated through the Weirwood net somehow. That is because both the Shadowcat undead Nissa Nissa figures and the hypothetical green zombie Night's Watch brothers are a version of Azor High or Nissa Nissa Reborn. That is why I call this section House of the Shadowcat. The Shadowcat represents the shadowy, merged sun and moon characters who come back out of the Weirwood net, and Arya is a shadowy killer cat that comes and goes from the House of Black and White, a symbol of the Weirwood net. I do need to add a small caveat, and that would be that ghostly assassins bent on revenge that emanate from the Weirwood net might also be a 100% accurate description of the others, who are white shadows instead of black shadows like the Black Brothers. As I've mentioned before, the Night's Watch and the others are kind of like opposite, long-lost brothers. I might also mention that the word dappled is used in the description of the others in the prologue of A Game of Thrones. Dun-dun-dun. In all seriousness, I have consulted the wise folks in the Starry Host, that's our patron community, by the way, and they seem to be of the opinion that we should go ahead and do our next podcast about the others. We still have more Weirwood episodes to do, both Weirwood Compendium and Weirwood Goddess episodes, but I think we can bounce between those episodes and ones about the others, which will come in the Moons of Ice and Fire series that we will start next time. So returning to the skin-changing connection between the Green Seers and the Faceless Men, let's have a look at the scene where Arya experiences whatever you call the face-wearing or face-swapping procedure that the Faceless Men do. I feel like I will hardly even need to explain the symbolism here, as it's practically leaping off the page like a cat sitting on a book when the vacuum cleaner is turned on. Mental image there for anyone who's ever had cats. I should mention that Arya had been reprising her Cat of the Canals role in the days leading up to this moment, while she had been scouting out the man she was to kill. This is from A Dance with Dragons, right after the kindly man asks Arya to close her eyes and prepare for pain. Still as stone... She thought. She sat on moving. The cut was quick, the blade sharp. By rights, the metal should have been cold against her flesh, but it felt warm instead. She could feel the blood washing down her face, a rippling red curtain falling across her brow and cheeks and chin. And she understood why the priest had made her close her eyes. When it reached her lips, the taste was salt and copper. She licked at it and shivered. Bring me the face, said the kindly man. The waif made no answer, but she could hear her slippers whispering over the stone floor. To the girl, he said, drink this, and pressed a cup into her hand. She drank it down at once. It was very tart, like biting into a lemon. A thousand years ago, she had known a girl who loved lemon cakes. No, that was not me. That was only Arya. The kindly man then explains that what they are doing goes deeper than a glamour, and that sort of thing, and then... Then came a tug and a soft rustling, as the new face was pulled down over the old. The leather scraped across her brow, dry and stiff, but as her blood soaked into it, it softened and turned supple, 
Her cheeks grew warm, flushed. She could feel her heart fluttering beneath her breast, and for one long moment she could not catch her breath. Hands closed around her throat, hard as stone, choking her. Her own hands shot up to claw at the arms of her attacker, but there was no one there. A terrible sense of fear filled her, and she heard a noise, a hideous crunching noise, accompanied by blinding pain. A face floated in front of her, fat, bearded, brutal. His mouth twisted with rage. She heard the priest say, Breathe, child. Breathe out the fear. Shake off the shadows. He is dead. She is dead. Her pain is gone. Breathe. The girl took a deep, shuddering breath and realized it was true. No one was choking her. No one was hitting her. Even so, her hand was shaking as she raised it to her face. Flakes of dried blood crumbled at the touch of her fingertips, black in the lantern light. He is dead. She is dead. Everybody's dead. Azora High and Nissanissa, they're all dead. They're all just shadows. You caught the Nissanissa stuff, right? With Arya shuddering and her heart fluttering beneath her breast, like Nissanissa bearing her breast to Lightbringer's blade. You'll notice Arya thinks the blade feels warm instead of cold. Warm isn't quite white-hot from the forge, like Lightbringer was, but it's something. She's got black blood, too, the hallmark of death transformation. Then we get the crunching noise of the comet impacting the moon, the one that left a crack across its face. And remember, it all starts with Arya saying to herself, still as stone. Now here's the description of Arya's false face. Two other eyes. Your nose and jaw are broken, said the wife. One side of your face is caved in where your cheekbone shattered, and half your teeth are missing. A crack across the face of the stone moon maiden, in other words, but simultaneously a catwoman who is like a weirwood being given its face, having its face carved. This is a great example of what I proposed in The Venus of the Woods. Nissa Nissa was equivalent to the weirwood and the moon, and that the moon being struck by the comet is a parallel event to the weirwood being given a face. Arya has been given a new face and undergone a death transformation because she has literally become a person who has already died by assuming the identity of this dead girl. This is both Nissa Nissa inside the weirwood tree and the undead moon figure, again with the crushed face of the dead girl Arya is posing as symbolizing the crushed moon face. And what does she do with this false face? Why, she runs out and kills somebody. The weirwood assassin and the shadow cat doing her thing. There's even a line which implies this ugly girl figure as a reincarnation of Cat of the Canals. It says, Cat of the Canals had known these alleys and the ugly girl remembered. It's as if Cat of the Canals is a person the ugly girl used to be. And remember, Arya was indeed posing as Cat of the Canals right up to the moment that she was given the ugly girl's face. This is a reborn Nissa Nissa figure, it would seem, an undead Catwoman. Best of all, the man she's supposed to kill has pretty distinct other's symbolism. The old man's hands were the worst thing about him, Cat decided the next day. As she watched him from behind her barrow, his fingers were long and bony, always moving, scratching at his beard, tugging at an ear, drumming on a table, twitching, twitching, twitching. He has hands like two white spiders. The more she watched his hands, the more she came to hate them. He moves his hands too much, she told them at the temple. He must be full of fear. 
The gift will bring him peace. Like two white spiders, huh? Hard to interpret that as anything other than a reference to the others and their infamous ice spiders, which are also called white spiders by Old Nan. It also makes sense, in the context of the overall picture, if Arya and the Shadowcat archetype is aligned with the Night's Watch, killing the others. We will actually come back to this scene in the future when we talk about the others, so I don't want to go into it too much further, but it is noteworthy that Arya seems to be playing for the right team, if you will, and it's consistent with Arya's loyalty to the Watch and her brother Jon Snow. Technically, they are cousins because of RLJ, but they were raised as siblings, and that's what counts. At the beginning of this section, I said that Arya's Catwoman symbolism is the best of anyone because she actually skin changes a cat. So let's finish up by having a look at those scenes. It happens first when she's temporarily blinded as part of her Faceless Men training as she sits in Pinto's tavern eavesdropping. A tomcat comes and sits on her lap, and Arya thinks that cats aren't fooled by Mummer's costumes and that they still remembered her from when she posed as Cat of the Canals. Three Lyseni sailors, who were part of the slaver crew that kidnapped some of the wildlings from Hardhome, draw her attention. The Lyseni took the table nearest to the fire and spoke quietly over cups of black tar rum, keeping their voices low so no one could overhear. But she was no one, and she heard most every word. And for a time, it seemed that she could see them too, through the slitted yellow eyes of the tomcat purring in her lap. One was old and one was young, and one had lost an ear. But all three had the white blonde hair and smooth fair skin of Lys, where the blood of the old freehold still ran strong. The first thing to note is simply the use of her skin-changer powers to see through the slitted yellow eyes of the cat. That point kind of makes itself. There's really not a lot else to say about it, since we've been talking about it for two episodes. Nissa Nissa is a cat woman and a skin-changer. There you go. Arya skin changes the cat again inside the House of Black and White, using the cat's vision to finally strike the kindly man in their stick sword routine, which Arya had been unable to do while blinded. But there's not even really a ton to say about that scene, other than to observe this vengeful Nissa Nissa character using skin changer magic as a weapon. We can also observe that a skin changer faceless man is going to be pretty freaking deadly. Arya is beginning to surpass her master already just as Bran shows signs of being a more powerful Greenseer than Bloodraven. There is one next-level observation to make about Arya's skin-changing of the cat, having to do with what Arya sees through the cat's eyes in that scene in Pinto's tavern. People with Valerian blood, the blood of the dragon. By that, I'm referring to those Lyseni sailors slash slave traders who just came from Hardhome, whose Valerian blood is noted in the quote. And they're not just any dragon-blooded people, they are dragon-blooded people who have sailed to Westeros. Oh, okay. Here I will remind you of a tidbit from our Great Empire of the Dawn episode with History of Westeros, namely, a little maesterly speculation about the mysterious Dawn Age seafarers who came to Battle Isle, the eventual site of the High Tower of Old Town. The operative question that they're considering is, why did these ancient dragon lords come to Westeros? And they suggest that they came to barter with the elder races which would probably mean the children of the forest, as they would be easier to barter with than giants or the others, I would think. A bit further on, Maester Yandel, who wrote, quote-unquote, The World of Ice and Fire, talks about the possibility of dragonlords coming to Westeros before the First Men, as suggested by the enigmatic fused stone fortress on Battle Isle. He asks, Did they come seeking trade? Were they slavers, mayhaps seeking after giants? Did they seek to learn the magic of the children of the forest? 
Now those three Lyseni were indeed slavers, so perhaps the maester is correct here. But how about that last suggestion? Dragon lords learning the magic of the children of the forest? That might be exactly what the story of Azor Ahai coming to Westeros and wedding Nissa Nissa might be all about. I mean, that's essentially what all the symbolic depictions of Azor Ahai going into the Weirwood Net dictates, that Azor Ahai came to Westeros and entered the Weirwood Net. Since Nissa Nissa seems to have some sort of symbolic overlap with the Weirwoods, a dryad figure with an intrinsic bond to the Weirwoods, it figures that she might have been a Westerosi figure. There you go, it figures. She was a child of the forest, or a female green man, or hybrid of one of those. If she was a child of the forest, or a female green man, or a hybrid of one of those, then it's very possible her blood and her magic was a key part of Azor Ahai choosing her for his blood magic ritual. At the end of this five-hour examination of all this evidence that suggests Nissa Nissa as some kind of elf woman that we've gone through over the past two podcasts, deep breath, I think that this is kind of the central point. The reason for Nissa Nissa to be a child of the forest, or a hybrid, or a female green man, is because she would have a magical connection to the weirwoods. Azor Ahai definitely seems to come from the east, but we can surmise that he came to Westeros, both from the evidence that we've reviewed previously, and because of the simple fact that the narrative dictates that something as prominently featured in the story as the myth of Azor Ahai and Lightbringer must have some connection to Westeros. One thinks of the story of the Danes, whom I theorize to have descended from the great empire of the dawn, and how they follow the track of a falling star to Starfall, and perhaps to Westeros. These Dawn Age dragonlords from the east probably brought the technology and cruel intent needed to forge Lightbringer, but the key to it all may have been Nissa Nissa, a child of the forest woman from Westeros. section, Tiger Woman. This special bonus section is brought to you by two of our priests of starry wisdom, the notorious J.R.K., Hacker of Brambles, the Godfinger on Earth, and Bjorn Berserker of the Bear Shirt, Bishop of Kumaraja, and host of the Super Geeky Playdate podcast. And because this is a bonus section, I'd also like to thank Shiera Lewin Ellen, Blue Star of Heaven, and resident linguist of the podcast. Okay, who's ready for some bonus round action? We've got one last Catwoman clue, which is a bit more off the beaten path. Yet, it relates to the discussion of Azor Ahai coming to Westeros. And that would be the notorious Tiger Woman of Eastern legend. The Bloodstone Emperor was said to have taken a Tiger Woman for his bride, which could certainly be a description of a Child of the Forest Woman due to their slitted cat's eyes, as we mentioned in our episodes with History of Westeros about the Great Empire of the Dawn. We also mentioned a related clue having to do with the Isle of Lang, which has been ruled by a god empress going back to remote history, with the exception of a brief period of Yeetish occupation. The Bloodstone Emperor was the last of the god emperors of the Great Empire of the Dawn, so the god empress seems like a logical match. God emperor, god empress. Lang happens to have a strong connection with tigers, making a tiger association for a Langi god empress quite possible. The World of Ice and Fire says that Lang is home to 10,000 tigers and 10 million monkeys. And a couple of times in the main books, we hear about tiger skins from Lang. Illyrio trades in them, for example. Perhaps more interesting is the description of the native Lengi, also from the World of Ice and Fire. This one's weird. The native Lengi are perhaps the tallest of all the known races of mankind. 
with many men amongst them reaching seven feet in height, and some as tall as eight, long-legged and slender, with flesh the colour of oiled teak. They have large golden eyes, and can supposedly see farther and better than other men, especially at night, though formidably tall. The women of the Lengi are famously lithe and lovely, of surpassing beauty. This mystery is deepened by the rumors of haunted subterranean stone cities in the jungles of Leng, in which the old ones live, whomever they are. The empress was said sometimes to have congress with the old ones, gods who lived deep below the ruined subterranean cities, and from time to time the old ones told her to put all strangers on the island to death. We don't really have time to solve the mystery of the old ones right now, but what has our attention is the idea that these Lengi are associated with tigers and have golden eyes which see in the dark as the children do, and they have golden brown skin coloring, much like the children. But they are so tall. It's hard to say exactly what's going on here, but the signs of some sort of magical race present on the island simply add to the mystery. Plus, Lang is close to Ashai and was supposedly a part of the Great Empire of the Dawn. For now, the takeaway is simply that the Bloodstone Emperor's Tiger Woman could have been a Langi God Empress, and this could still lead us back to Nissa Nissa as some kind of elf woman. We will actually be following up on some of these ideas pretty soon, and here I'll give a shout out to one of our Patreon Priests of Starry Wisdom, Patchface of Motley Wisdom, who's an accomplished theory crafter in his own right on Reddit, as we've been comparing notes on Lang and the Old Ones of late. Another episode in the On Deck Circle. All right, well, this episode has reached its limit. Thanks for joining us, and if you'd like to help the podcast grow, please share our LMLTV The Long Night video, maybe give us a nice rating on iTunes, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't done that already, and of course, if you have the means to become a Patreon supporter, that's what keeps the lights on, and we really appreciate that. Happy Memorial Day, everyone, and I'd like to dedicate this podcast to the memory of my grandfather, Robert Cleve Beers a lifelong Navy man and veteran ballbuster. Rest in peace, Pop-Pop. Pop.